Welcome back to episode 105 of Warrior's Den. Today's guest is Major Nadav Raz of the IDF. And uh, this was a super interesting one. Uh, we talk all about all sorts of stuff. But here's a little excerpt from the episode. And for me, like the one thing that, that, that first let me deal with depression was understanding the basics of Buddhist thought. So the basic tenet of Buddhism is that the world is suffering. And that is awesome. It's like if your baseline is that the world is suffering, that's a good philosophy for me to sort of understand because I'm suffering. I'm suffering. I'm not a Buddhist, but that is quite profound. But before we get into the episode, a word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening to the Warrior's Den podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Karmaga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. If you like this podcast and our content, make sure you support us in the many various ways you can. The easy and free ways start with liking, subscribing, following, and leaving a positive review wherever you may be listening or watching. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram at Urban Tactics Krav Maga, and Twitter at Urban Tactics KM. You can also follow us on YouTube and Rumble at Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Another great way to support this podcast, as well as our other content, is to check out our blog at www.utkmblog.com. Here you can check out our weekly curriculum, our various blog posts, and general ideas about Kramaga and self-defense. For those of you feeling generous, you can also click on the Support Us tab and send donations our way so we can continue providing the awesome content you love. And for those who would like a little more for their money, you can check out www.utkmu.com and learn Kramaga and self-defense online as we teach it at our school. You can check out the various levels of curriculum with monthly or annual subscriptions and learn Kramaga so that you too can walk in peace. Small disclaimer, UTKMU is meant to supplement your regular Kramaga self-defense or martial arts training in person with qualified instructors and is not a substitute for in-person real training. And for those of you who want to look as good as I know you feel, you can always check out www.utkmshop.com where you can check out and buy the latest UTKM merch from us. Warning, wearing UTKM merch will not turn you from a lamb to a lion. To start your transformation from lamb to lion, you must start your training journey today. Stay consistent and never give up wherever you may be. Side effects of wearing UTKM merch may be chronic bouts of kicking ass, feeling good, and learning to walk in peace. And of course, if you are in the Metro Vancouver area, come train with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. I would love to help you on your journey from lamb into lion. And now, back to the episode. Welcome to this episode. This was a really awesome episode for me. It got quite deep in depression, PTSD, philosophical ideas, uh, IDF, Israel, counterterrorism. So Major Nadav Raz is someone that you probably would have never heard of. He doesn't run some major organization. He's not in some movies. Uh, this is a common thing with people who have interesting lives with interesting stories. If they're not on a show like this, you would never hear about them. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see him on another show. I'll just give you a quick show sharing here. So you can see this is uh, Nir Maman running an interview with him on the Canadian Tactical Officers Association uh, interview. And I heard him talking about uh, PTSD uh, and counterterrorism, of course, but the way he framed 
PTSD and aggression, which we talk about in this episode, I found fascinating. So I asked him to come on. And in this episode, we explore all sorts of things from his experience uh, starting in the infantry Nahal Brigade to being invited to teach counterterrorism from a perspective of infantry, which he did for 20 plus years. He now teaches uh, civilians how to defend themselves against unwanted violence in various areas of Israel. Um, but like many Israelis, he went to the Far East, Asia, China, etc., and he found Buddhism, which helped him with his PTSD. And that is a large part of the conversation, is mental health, PTSD, his experience. We do talk about counterterrorism towards the end, uh, and we dive deep into this topic, both my personal experience with mental health and depression and his, including how he got PTSD, where he was almost shot by a supposed ally after being uh, under fire continuously for several days. So it was an awesome conversation. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Enjoy. Krav Maga is not just a self-defense system. It is a way of life. Warriors Den is a podcast for Kravists, fighters, martial artists, warriors, politicians, and general citizens. Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Lucididi, your host, Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo, and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. So I am with Major Nadav Raz of the Israeli Defense Force today. How are you? I'm good. And you? I am doing great. Time difference is always fun. You actually gave me a good time difference. Uh, I had to get up at two in the morning once to do an Israeli one before. So <laughs> I appreciate the, uh, the good time. Um, so let's just start with uh, your early Israeli Defense Force IDF experience and uh, how it led you to where you are today, uh, teaching in the counterterrorism school. Um, so I started out in the Nacha Brigade, that's regular infantry, um, and sort of advanced from there. I did basic uh, commander's course. And from there, I was actually moved into the reconnaissance units in my brigade. Um, so I learned reconnaissance. And from there, I was sent to officer's course um, I was supposed to come back and be the officer of the reconnaissance unit in the battalion. Um, but for all kinds of different reasons, I, I didn't. Um, and I became a regular infantry uh, platoon commander. And from there, I actually went back to officer's course to be an instructor. Uh, so I was, uh, I was an officer's course instructor. And I was looking to do something else after that. So... Um, I had an option of waiting a bit longer and going back to my original infantry battalion or move to the counterterrorism school. They had just opened up uh, what's called Madolos, um, which is, um, it's, you can call it micro tactics or counter guerrilla uh, warfare, 
or counterinsurgency warfare. It had like all mm. these different things. It was a brand new unit, um, instruction unit. It needed a lot of uh, different thinking. Um, and they wanted infantry officers for that, not special forces. So I actually transferred to the counterterrorism school. I went through the counterterrorism training. And from there, I um, assisted in the construction of the counter guerrilla warfare unit. Um, so that was like my basic, uh, my, my basic work while I was in the military, though that was sort of my path. Along that, I, I also got to do joint, um, joint training with uh, foreign forces. I was actually in charge of the of foreign force training in the counterterrorism school uh, mm. because of my English mostly. Yeah. Um, so I used to train Marines, Delta, all kinds of different uh, special forces that came through Israel uh, on their way to Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I also worked with the Center for Lessons Learned. That's an American military um, institute that basically brings uh, all kinds of majors and generals to learn lessons from the Israeli military. So I got to work with them a bit. Um, and that was my basic uh, military service. Um, along that time, while I was in the infantry, I also was in combat and I, uh, I suffered from PTSD as a consequence of that combat. Um, so that sort of moved along with me also. Um, and, and eventually after a couple of years in the military, I decided to leave the army and I spent some time in monasteries in the Far East mm. studying uh, Eastern religion and, and meditation, that kind of stuff. And when I came back for my reserve duty, I became the commanding officer of the, of the School for Settlement Protection, which is a counterterrorism school for civilians um, under the IDF, mm. uh, which is basically what I've been doing for the past 18 years, training civilians in counterterrorism um, against, uh, you would call it uh, sh shooters or uh, active shooters. Lone shooters or yeah. Active shooters, exactly. Lone wolves, um, et cetera. Yeah, that, that kind of uh, situations mostly. Mm. Um, so that's like the, the gist of it. And today, yeah. as, as a regular person, I teach, I, I, um, I'm an acupuncturist. Uh, I'm an acupuncturist. I also lecture on it. I also lecture on PTSD. And I do my reserve duty, which is what I said about the, the self-protection. Mm, yeah. So I think that's a very good synopsis. So you, you covered it all. So we want to go through all of that, I think. Because um, a lot of people are not familiar with how the IDF works exactly. I'm sure throughout this podcast, uh, with all the guests I'll have, I'll have to go through it again. Now, my experience, I was in the IDF many years ago, and I went in with no clue, right? Nothing at all. And it's a very different army structure than a lot of other armies, because you know, often in, in the, again, I wasn't in the Western Canadian army or anything, but they usually go to officer school first or a long program while well, as the yeah. IDF goes, because you went through a few stages and maybe just sort of explain that a little bit for people who aren't aware. So the IDF is actually quite unique in that manner. Um, officers are soldiers first. Uh, you, you enlist into a regular unit, you go, you first need to do basic training, advanced training, a basic commander's course, which is it's like a squad leader course. You learn to, to lead a, a unit of 12 men inside your mm -hmm. platoon. Um, and only after, I would suppose, about a year and a half or two years in the military, you can opt to go to officer's course. There's all of these criteria that you need to go through to be able to be accepted to officer's course. But you have to go first go through the whole system as a regular soldier. Um, you don't go straight to command. The only, the only place you do that in the Israeli military is in the Air Force and the Navy, 
um, or with pilots basically, or ship commanders, they go to a specific commander's course. But in their general army, you, you start up as a regular soldier and you sort of move up through the ranks um, from infantryman to sergeant to, 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 to uh, like squad leader to sergeant, and then eventually you evolve to an officer. Um, and the three years mandatory service is for regular soldiers. Once you become an officer, there's a mandatory extra year. Um, and from there on, you can sign on to be career, which is mm -hmm. what I started out doing and eventually I cut that short. Yeah, and so and you ended up in uh, Pulsar Nachal. Is that uh, not in Pulsar Nachal? It's um, Pulsar Nachal is the is the regiment uh, reconnaissance unit that was in the battalion reconnaissance unit. So battalion. it's very similar, uh, but it's a, just a bit smaller. Okay, yeah, because uh, like short so, range reconnaissance. Yeah, I mean, when I was there, I was trying to get in all sorts of special forces. Couldn't meet the expectations. I had some problems <laughs> as well, and I ended up just in the regular infantry. So like those units. So it was the unit you're in because I I'm not familiar. Uh, specifically with it, is it one that you could have potentially got in right away or is it one that only you get in? Because like Pulsars, you can get in right away. So, so for, yeah, so for me, um, I went through the, the screening for the Pulsar, for the, for the reconnaissance uh, unit. I got injured in the last hour of the screening. Oh, uh, yeah. So I was sent to regular infantry. They told me I could, go, I could go through it again in four months. I was already after basic training. I, I wasn't planning on doing that again. Um, the, the battalion level reconnaissance unit is what's called a Vatika. It's an older company. It's only soldiers that have been in the military for at least a year and a half. Uh, so you go into that unit and then you do a, a shorter reconnaissance course. It's not the, the high level reconnaissance, it's a bit lower, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you are certified as reconnaissance. Yeah. Um, so if you're talking about the Palsar, the range that they're supposed to do reconnaissance is about 20 kilometers deep behind enemy lines. The battalion level is a bit lower. It's around 10 kilometers, 12 kilometers. Um, Still not bad. It's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's basically the same run through. You go through intelligence training and a lot of navigation, um, that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, the, I never did a navigation course, but, you know, when I told people like, oh, yeah, they got to go blind. You got to memorize the route and go uh, to other yeah. people from other militaries. Like, wait, what? So, yeah, you That's also memorize. very unique for the Israeli military. We do not <laughs> open a map. That's like a yeah. big no-no. You yeah. have to study your map by heart. Um, the funny thing is, when you go into these older battalions, into the older companies in the battalion, the Vatikot, what's called, the, the veteran uh, companies, then there's also like this ranking system according to how long you've been in the military. Yeah. So I got into, the, into that company very, very young relatively. I was like, I was in that company uh, like a year and two months in. Usually you don't join them before a year and a half. So there's like this level. So while the, the veterans were doing the more complex missions, I was cooking for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, like we take the reconnaissance Jeep, they'd open up an OP and I would be doing the, the cooking for them from the, the food that we stole from the other companies. <laughs> um, and I really like gained weight. Yeah. And when I was sent to officer's course, uh, the first thing you do before officer's course is like a preparation. So it's like two weeks preparation for officer's course, which is just navigation. And we were navigating like 20 kilometers a night, maps closed. You had to study the, 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 the navigation by heart. Um, and I lost all the weight that I gained in that, in yeah. that company, uh, just trekking all night long in, the, in these navigations. Yeah. It yeah, it's always fun. Like I put on weight too. I was probably my heaviest I've ever been when I was, you know, on, on the line as they say, 
Um, and people, when you talk to people like, how can you put on weight in the army? It's like, well, first of all, there's no downtime. You are owned by that army and you do whatever you want unless you're sleeping. And even then, so your body is kind of pushed to its limits. And like, and I was one of the people It's like any extra time I had, I'm sleeping. Well, I had friends who were like, I'm going to go for a run. I'm like, you're crazy. I'm going to say, <laughs> um, you have to really enjoy it. It's a very different experience. I think, um, I, I, I often in. I remember I never met the person, but I remember there was an individual in, in the uh, battalion uh, who came from the Marine Corps when I was there. So four year Marine Corps, American Marine Corps. And my understanding was, is that he had a mental breakdown because of the lack of discipline and just a complete crazy, like no downtime, no nothing. And it's a, it's a whole different world. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very intense. Um, I mean, even when you're doing, when you're actually deployed, um, and you're basically doing like these really annoying missions, checkposts and stuff like yeah. that, it's like you're on your feet all day long. There's the, and the downtime you have, you're basically spending it sleeping. Yeah. Um, when I was in the army, you get six hours of sleep. Now I think it's like seven, uh, because they saw what it was doing physically to the, to the soldiers. Yeah. But even those six hours of sleep, you're like waking six hours of sleep. Up. <laughs> you're being woken up to do uh, guard duty and stuff like that. You never really actually get your six hours of sleep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember like that. that for yeah. yeah. For me, there was a period. Uh, I was lucky slash unlucky. It depends on your perspective where it was a relatively quiet period, peaceful time. Mm -hmm. However, my understanding was where I was stationed in Shem at the time. This is actually during the time of the Fogel uh, family murders. Yeah. And uh, I actually actually was at the counterterrorism school when that happened. But my understanding is my specific area was one of the busiest in the entire IDF. And my specific unit was the one that the, the what is it, the company kept sending out for everything because we were both responsible mm -hmm. and the captain hated our lieutenant. So there was a period for about <laughs> three, four weeks there where we were not sleeping and I got I didn't do too bad, but in my squad, I saw what sleep deprivation can, can do to people. You know, two of the guys were getting a little chummy with each other. And, you know, one guy started not talking to anyone. I, I think I started talking to myself, in, uh, talking about myself in third person uh, just for weeks on end. And it's like a crazy, crazy experience there for sure. Yeah, well, well for my whole ordeal with the whole post-trauma thing um, was eventually partially because I hadn't slept in like three nights. We were in combat for a couple of days with no sleep. Um, mm. And yeah, that, that does it to you. <laughs> yeah. So before the combat uh, situation, how long were you? Oh, first of all, what was the year you, you enlisted as required? I enlisted in 1999 and okay. I left the military at the end of 2004. 2004. So, yeah. uh, and you were an officer by the end of that point or not yet? Yeah. Yeah, I was All a right. lieutenant uh, when I left the military. All right. So then, uh, man, I can't remember the dates. So which of the many wars did you enter? <laughs> can't so as part, of, as a regular soldier, um, when when I finished basic training, Israel left Lebanon. Mm. Um, so that was the the, the Lebanon uh, retreat or leaving of Lebanon, and a couple of months later was the beginning of the Second Intifada. Uh, during that time, we also had 9-11, which was very, 
it, it, I was an officer's course at the time that really affected us um, with our training and our outlook on, on a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, so that was in my regular time. Again, the second intifada, depending on how you count it, most of the combat was in the first two years, which was most of my service. Yeah, and for uh, those who don't know, maybe explain the intifada a little bit. So the first intifada was in the late 80s, early 90s, which is based, intifada basically means uprising. Um, so it's a popular uprising by civilians. The second intifada happened after the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords were an attempt at peace with the Palestinians. Um, for all kinds of different reasons, um, it didn't really work out. Part, part of it was the prime minister at the time, or, or was, I think he was the minister of defense at the time, uh, Aliyah Sharon went uh, up to the Temple Mount and that caused some, uh, some rioting. And that sort of escalated, along with a lot of other stuff that happened at the time, that sort of escalated into an uprising, um, which, after the thought, was, was planned out. This wasn't something spontaneous. Mm. Um, it was designed to destroy the peace deal. Um, and basically, uh, it's an uprising in the West Bank and Gaza with that became just not regular riots, but actual combat. Mm. Um, it turned from a point that we were doing joint uh, joint missions with the Palestinian police, and turning and eventually them them become, becoming actually our enemy. Um, that sort of happened as as everything was going. So that uprising lasted for a good couple of years until I don't think it actually officially ever ended, mm. but eventually Israel um, decided to scrap the peace deal and went back into the Palestinian towns. Up until then, the Palestinian Authority had complete control of what's called Area A um, in the Palestinian Authority area. Um, so the army went on the offensive, and eventually everything sort of calmed down. The, the, the early 2000s were a lot of attacks on, on settlements. There were bus bombings. There were hotel bombings. There were um, restaurant bombings. A lot of different really heavy suicide attacks and, and general attacks on Israeli population. And which at around 2001 or 2002, there was a big operation that was meant to sort of calm everything down and, and destroy their infrastructure. And that sort of worked. And eventually everything sort of went down uh, combat wise. Um, yeah. And ever since then, there hasn't been a complete return to that, uh, to what, what was before. Technically the Palestinians control area A um, and Israel's Israeli work area b and c it's a bit complicated but that was the basic gist of it it was uh yeah. an uprising but it's 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 not just rioting it was it was combat a lot of suicide bombings a lot of interesting stuff especially in gaza that's when rockets had, had begun in some mortars and a lot of real interesting counterinsurgency and counter guerrilla engagements yeah. in that area because I remember when I was there, we uh, were outside of Shechem or Nabulus, and uh, we weren't really allowed to go into it. It's like we're not allowed to go in. One, it's too dangerous, and two, it's not our territory. Uh, I think the only times they went near it was, uh, I think there's the tomb of Joseph there, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's under technically under Israeli control. Yeah. Um, but uh, Palestinian Authority is, is the one who, who deals, who polices the place. There are soldiers yeah. inside the actual tomb, but aside from that, everything is uh, is Palestinian controlled. No, I can't remember. I, I'm so out of rusty with my knowledge. But also, <laughs> what what time was the, uh, the the sort of Jerusalem wall put up? About the end of that, right? 
the the big wall down uh, um yeah it basically started um during the second intifada yeah. it wasn't completed until way way later yeah. um but it was as a car it was built because of the basically people throwing stones at vehicles on the on the main sorry on the main roads and stuff like that so we were trying to block off the ability to attack civilian um traffic yeah. um and eventually sort of close off the options of palestinians um infiltrating israel through basically a borderless wall um mm. everything was everything is so close to each other in these areas that it was easy just to walk through and, and go into israel so that was the point of, of the construction of that wall but yeah. it's funny because you're talking about nabas one of the, the the big things that started the second intifada was what we call the madhat yusuf um a scenario, Matchat Yusuf was a police, border police officer in Shechem, at the at the Joseph's tomb, and they were basically under siege for a good couple of hours, mm. and the military did not go in to rescue those uh, police officers, the border patrol police, um, and they were trusting the Palestinian police to to sort of get everything under control. And Matchat Yusuf uh, was injured and eventually died from his. Uh, from the injuries because it took so long to get those guys out of there. Yeah. Um, but at, basically after that, the military began to take more initiative um, and stopped trusting the Palestinian Authority. Um, yeah, so, the, so that was like one of the big things that happened during the beginning of the Intifada. Yeah, and it's, it's always in, like, because I'm in a fairly liberal city and uh, people, I often when they start talking about, oh, it's oppression, it's oppression, I'm like... Uh, but is it though, because every time we leave, the violence goes through the roof and then we kind of go back and a little bit of violence and then it goes down. I think uh, people really don't understand the sort of, there are certain people in the Palestinian uh, organizations that they're not interested in peace at all. And if you let them build up every single time, they start start up violence again. See, so, uh, it's kind of um, like- um, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to be uh, political about yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, there there are certain advantages to not having having peace, and mm. a lot of it is actually money coming into the Palestinian Authority. Um, yeah. As long as they were in a state of war with Israel, basically, they're getting funding, and once mm. there's peace, they have to sort of fend for themselves, um, eventually, and that funding will start to run out. The the, the Palestinian Authority is extremely rich at least the guys on the top they have yeah. very nice houses yasser arafat i think he was estimated like 200 million dollars yeah. or more is like tons of money um and i don't know how you actually make money as a terrorist so that money had to come from somewhere yeah it's it's super interesting and complicated yeah. and sad all at the same time so uh was it the leaving lebanon where you saw the, the conflict or was it one of the other little? No, stories? it was the beginning of Intifada. Well, right. leaving Lebanon, we were. I was in a, in a young unit that didn't that didn't deploy us uh, into Lebanon. We just got to see them leaving. Um, for me, I was sent to that basic commander's course, the the squad leader course. And the story basically goes that we the, the course is three months long, and like the last two or three weeks of the course, um, they told us, "Listen, there's gonna there's probably going to be riding in Gaza." Um, we are sending you for 24 hours uh, as backup to some of the units there. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that when you're, when you're doing a course in the army, 
you're not with the best equipment. You get like the basic stuff that you need for your course. So you're not in a combat unit. Um, so you basically, we went with our M16s and our vests. They told us even not to take a change of clothing. We're going to be there for 24 hours and we're coming back to base and we're going to finish up the course. So we arrive in Gaza. We arrive there by buses. Outside of Gaza, they take us off the buses. They put us into armored buses. We go in maybe half a kilometer. They take us off those armored buses and put us into safaris. Safaris is like an armored truck. Mm. Um, so it's like each time they're like bringing the, 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 the defensive level a bit higher. And we're seeing that Gaza is burning. There's riding everywhere. There's tires and, and like a real mess. And eventually we, we are deployed to an outpost in the southern part of Gaza, in the area that's called Nevet Kalim. It's a small settlement that used to, used to be there. And we're sitting there for a couple of hours. We're sort of trying to figure out what to do with us because we don't, we're not equipped for rioting. Yeah. Um, oh, I knew that story well. <laughs> Where's our riot gear? What riot gear? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So we're sitting in that outpost and eventually they say, okay, we need five volunteers to go into a deeper outpost. So I volunteer along with uh, four of my uh, teammates and my, uh, and my squad leader. And we move into, this, uh, into another outpost. And this outpost is half IDF, half Palestinian Authority. Mm -hmm. So it's one half is a police station. The other half is a military outpost. Um, we are joining there another six soldiers, um, actually another five soldiers and an officer. So all in all, we're about 12 guys in this outpost. And this outpost is on Khan Yunus. Khan Yunus is one of the biggest um, cities in Gaza. It has one of the most densest populations in the world. And we're sitting in this outpost and the riding is right on top of us. But because yeah. it's half of a police station, a Palestinian police station, they're not touching us. They're attacking all the outposts around us. Um, so it's basically stone throwing and, and, and rioting and, you know, it's just like Molotov cocktails, not too much. Uh, oh, just a little Molotov. <laughs> yeah, just not, not, nothing serious. Um, but I do see my company outpost was about 150 meters away from us in an open field. Mm -hmm. And they were starting to get hit by Molotov cocktails. Uh, we were hearing on the radio that people were injured. Um, and we can't fire back again because we don't have any, any riot gear. Um, and we're not going to shoot live fire at, uh, at protesters. And again, because it was a Palestinian um, uh, police station, they didn't touch us. They went around us. Um, so we're there for like, like 24 hours. And eventually those 24 hours become 48 hours. And they tell us, listen, this is not going to end anytime soon. Um, the army um, wasn't able to send us supplies because of that open field between our, uh, our positions. and we started to fortify our position because we thought we, we were seeing that everything was starting, starting to escalate worse and worse. There were all these situations. There was Matchat Yusuf, there was the lynch in Ramallah. Um, there was um, um, a child that, was, that they thought that the Israelis shot and eventually it was proven that it was actually the Palestinians that shot him, but it, that also caused like more rioting. Um, sorry, I think I got mixed up. Matchat Yusuf was the name of the child. I'm mixing mm. up the, the, the police officer with, with a different name, a Jewish police officer. I don't remember exactly. It doesn't matter. Um, so everything was escalating. And eventually, from within these crowds, we started receiving live fire. Um, so they're shooting at us at the outpost. Um, and we can't shoot back, again, because they're shooting from inside civilians. Mm. And the buildings that are surrounding us also, we're starting to receive fire. And again, we can't shoot back 
because it's really, really hard to differentiate and see where they're shooting at, at us from. And you can't just shoot into someone's house. Yeah. Um, and the orders were basically like hunch down, take, take the shooting and, and sort of hold out. Um, and eventually that escalated more and more. And we were given orders to be on station, be in our posts whenever there's a riot. And everyone needs to be on post when they are shooting at us. So basically from about six o'clock in the morning to about six o'clock in the evening, they're rioting. And from about six o'clock in the evening to six o'clock in the morning, they're shooting at us. Yeah. So we found ourselves basically in our post for about 48. I can't really remember the amount of time. I think it was like 48 or 72 hours um, without leaving our post. We didn't get any sleep. Um, eventually we sort of paired up and we tried to sort of sleep inside our, our, uh, our pillbox or whatever mm. uh, but we were basically under fire most of that time or, or dealing with whatever just 12 men we didn't have food we didn't have much ammunition um, and then like the last night of that whole situation I was hit by a sniper right above my head but, uh, mm. like dinged right, right next to my helmet and then my position was hit by an RPG um it was a good it was a good uh, uh post so nothing happened to me except for some ringing in my ears mm. but i was allowed to go uh and rest for a couple of minutes for a couple of, uh, i don't remember minutes or hours but they were allowed allowed me to go down out of my post and, and go rest for a bit because of the, uh, the explosion and while i'm sitting um in like this club room like a television and a couch and whatever and trying to get some rest a uh, Palestinian police officer crosses over to our side of the post, enters the room that I'm in, and shoots uh, a bunch of bullets at me. Okay. He misses them all. My luck. Everything sort of like hits right, right above my head. Um, and I, I hit the deck, and I try to, to grab my weapon and, and sort of go after him. But he crosses back over to the Palestinian side, and we weren't allowed to um, go after him. Hmm. Um... So that, that was like the entire situation. And like a couple of hours later, our entire unit was moved out of that, out of that post and we were relieved of duty there. Um, but eventually that whole situation sort of, it took me a couple of years to understand that it was everything I had to do with that specific scenario. Mm. Um, but I had lost my ability to sleep. I had uh, developed a form of paranoia. Um, and all kinds of different stuff that that happens with uh, post-traumatic stress. If it's uh, muscle pain and anger issues and all kinds of stuff like that, that sort of developed um, along the years after that. And I was mm. still in the army, and I was doing officers' course, and I was going the current. I mean, I was still serving as long as I, was, as I was doing my job. I was fine. It was the downtime that was problematic for me. Mm, yeah. um, so luckily, we didn't have much downtime. We were doing operations after operations for a good couple of years. Um, so yeah, you know, it's uh, one thing I got out of that story, which was my experience too, is the amount of restraint that the IDF actually has is insane compared to what the image that's posted. I can't imagine like not shooting back. I, I obviously I did not have anything quite so traumatic or drama, you know, as dramatic as that. I had a situation similar. The only time we had to discharge our weapons was uh, there was about 100, 200 uh, Palestinians and they had slings and we were the first response team. There was, you know, five of us and a lieutenant 
and uh, no one was anywhere close to us. And we're on the hillside with our backs to the hill and the, the rocks are flying past our heads. And the lieutenant kind of panicked. We had no riot control gear either, which is interesting because I was like 10 years later, they still didn't learn their lesson. And we were on the line too, not in a course. Yeah. And uh, he gave the command to our sergeant to shoot in the air. And I was like, one of us? I was like, no, we're all doing it. And so we all, as a cohesive unit, shot in the air. The lieutenant panicked because he thought we were shooting at them. But it was sufficient to make them realize, hey, we're a cohesive unit. Stay back. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, I remember having a discussion with my captain at the time being like, this is insane. Where's our riot control gear? We ended up with uh, tear gas and rubber bullets after that. No shields because Israel doesn't apparently give those. No, we don't do those. <laughs> but uh, it's the amount of restraint that the IDF has is, is, is quite amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, during that time at the post, um, the general rule was only marksmen and snipers can shoot back. Mm. um so again we were ir irrelevant we had none of those kind of optics on our weapons yeah. um so it was only if somebody would cross what's called the red line uh, that we were allowed to shoot and that's um if there's like a, a real good chance of them trying to infiltrate us um but aside from that we were basically there to be bullet magnets that was the yeah. <laughs> fun life the yeah. americans yeah. for example would not understand that they would be like huh like you're not shooting back which is it's interesting now the the traumatic event because when i was in the idf 2009 to 2011 the mental health awareness was not really there so i can't imagine and it was much better than in my time yeah which I is not you that. Much. <laughs> right. so how did that sort of you know you can as, as much or a little detail as you want to um how did that sort of progress from there uh, in the military or for me both uh, we could talk about, you know, how do you manage? You just sort of sucked it up for the rest of the military. Yeah, I, again, I sucked it up for me. It was just like fatigue. I didn't really, mm. everyone around me was, was the same. You know, it was like everything, we were going from operation to operation. We were busy, 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 you know, sort of, you, so as long as you're sort of doing your military life, you don't think about it too much. Um, and you can't complain because, you know, everybody is doing operations nonstop. Um, so you don't think about it too much. Um, eventually it led me into a depression, mm. um, which caused me to eventually even be a bit like with suicidal thoughts. I had already taken out my gun and I'd already thought of, of shooting a bullet in my head and I didn't mm. know why. And that was like my first red flag, like, like my true real red flag that something is wrong. Um, because I was an officer, I did not want to go to any type of psychiatric health because I didn't, I didn't want them to take me away from my position. Um, mm. I, I believed in what I was doing and I still believe in what I'm doing. Um, so I tried to find alternative means of treating this. Um, I had been, because of these situations, I also become more or less an atheist. Mm. Um, so for me, God wasn't much of an option. Religion wasn't much of an option. And I went the way of the Jedi. Um, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and I thought meditation could be a good, a good way to deal with this. Mm. And that's sort of how I was introduced to meditation in general. Um, and eventually, I just, through people that I knew, um, they connected me with all kinds of forms of meditation. And, and that's while you're still learning. in your initial service? 
this is when I was already an officer in, at the counterterrorism mm. school. Um, I had taken a couple of days off. I was able to use some of my um, some of my free time, which I'd never used in, during my entire military service. And I went home and I spoke to a mother of a friend of mine who does all kinds of holistic medicine. And she sort of introduced me into, into that world. Mm. Um, and eventually she also does uh, I don't know what it's called in English. It's like a, like spirit talking or whatever. Mm. Um, and she told me that I need to learn Qigong, which is a form of Chinese meditation. Um, so I contacted my aunt who lived in Florida and she mm. had a school for Chinese medicine. And she says, we're doing a Qigong course right now. Uh, come over to Florida. I'll pay for the flight. Come and study meditation. So I actually was able to take a month off my military service. And I flew to Florida and I studied Qigong for a month. And I came back with that and I actually started practicing meditation. And during the military, I started teaching my soldiers also. Mm. Um, so that was sort of my beginning introduction into that kind of stuff. Again, it was mostly to calm my nerves because I knew that, that, that that's what I had diagnosed up until that point. And eventually, for all kinds of different reasons, I decided to leave the army. Um, and that's when I decided to start treating myself a bit more uh, in depth and uh, started to uh, travel Asia, basically. Um, the plan was to go to all the, the main religions in the East, study them, basically, and sort of build an understanding of how the mind works and how I want to live my life. Um, so I had spent time in Buddhist monasteries in Nepal and Hinduism in, in India and Vipassana and Zen Buddhism in Japan. And I was even studied Judaism in Hong Kong mm. um, and sort of connected to a more spiritual side of myself. Mm. Um, so, so that was sort of my original path. And eventually I came back to Israel and started learning Chinese medicine and acupuncture mostly and to be a Qigong instructor. Um, so that sort of developed. And while I was doing that, I was actually doing as a civilian contractor, I was teaching the military counterterrorism um, mm. for most of the years that I was studying. Uh, eventually I joined acupuncturists without borders. They treat uh, post-traumatic stress across the world um, for different situations, not just military. Uh, mm. But for me, that was like, that, that sort of showed me that there's a focus in post-traumatic stress uh, through acupuncture and i started dealing with that a bit more brought that into my own clinic um but when i was originally in the far east during a vipassana meditation uh, that's when i understood that i was post-traumatic suddenly i had like all these flashbacks sort of coming in i was back in gaza i was back in the situation and that's what sort of like when the, when the penny dropped and i and i knew that this was the, the the reason or one of the main causes of sort of how i'm feeling and i could start processing um the whole situation because I was, um, I was mad. I was mad at the mm. world. I was mad at a lot of people. I was mad at the, at the army, at the commanders, at my family, at a lot of people. And once I suddenly understood that, I, I could start processing um, what was going with me, what was going on inside me, and I could start dealing with it. And I began to take responsibility for my life and stop being mad at everyone else. Mm. Um, Which is a common like, uh, I'm. Well, I can speak for myself, like I've been accused of a lot of things. I know I was diagnosed with clinical depression for sure, whether it's related to the military or not. I'm not sure, but it definitely made it worse. Um, but I had an experience recently. I was experimenting with some substances that based on a lot of evidence suggested could help. Mm -hmm. And I took it and I was like, huh, 
maybe I have some kind of PTSD as well because it made some, it just made a huge shift yeah. and, you know, a lot of research into it. Uh, now, just to take a step back, when you sort of introduced uh, Qigong early on in the IDF, because back then it's not a, it's not popular, that kind of stuff, spirituality, meditation. It still is not popular. Yeah. So, so I imagine it wasn't received like why is received well it was probably like why is this guy <laughs> doing this? well I'd, I'd mostly done it with my with my men with my soldiers mm. and it was completely voluntary though nobody had to do it but there was a lot of um intrigue about it i had spent a lot of time reading um eastern philosophy at the time um and sort of that got me in into that field and it was just like interesting conversation it was like doing something completely different it's like we're on the range we're doing all that stuff all day long and suddenly here comes Nadav and it's like, let's do half an hour, an hour of just sitting meditation or yeah. moving meditation. Let's play with our energies a bit. Um, so it was more like a fun activity to do. Mm. Um, eventually I developed that actually into sort of like a system within combat. Um, but at the time it was more of like a thing you sort of do with uh, that crazy officer uh, who does that on his downtime. I was also practicing... Um, Japanese swordsmanship at the time. So that you could like see me on my downtime plant, uh, practicing with my boken or my katana. It's like, okay, there's some crazy guy in this unit and l l let's see what he's all about. Were you the uh, crazy guy? Because I heard a story. There was a there was an officer who carried a sword into Gaza multiple times. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I don't know that story. I had done that in multiple operations when I was at the counterterrorism school, but never in Gaza. Uh, but I'm not surprised that someone did that. Yeah, it's always, <laughs> always a character. I'm not sure what type yeah. of story, but anyways. Um, yeah, because I mean, nowadays, uh, we were sort of talking about it before, like whenever you introduce these sort of Eastern medicine ideas, like, so for, I'll take myself, for example, I, I may or may not be on the spectrum. I have all sorts of freaking problems. When I was growing up, I was always like, no, you know, the science, this, and this, and this, and this. And now as I'm getting older, I'm, you know, in a country like Canada, I'm very quickly losing faith in our medical system for many reasons. And, and I think there is a, Western medicine has its place, but there is some truth to Eastern medicine. And nobody's really trying to like bridge that gap of truth. What, what actually works? Cause, uh, People get hung up on ideologies or, hey, if I if I do this thing over and over again, like acupuncture and it's fixing the problem, maybe I don't have a great explanation for it, but it's fixing the problem. So maybe we can accept it works and look into why it works as we go along. Um, have so, you so run the, into the, the big pharmaceutical lie in this yeah. is that actually most pharmaceutical products in the past 20 years have been based in some form on Chinese medicine. Um, they've been testing chemicals um, of traditional Chinese medicine herbs um, and sort of making the, the chemical equivalent in pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. Even aspirin. Aspirin comes from the bark of a tree in Africa, mm -hmm. uh, the original chemical that, that you, you, that's used in aspirin. Um, so, you know, it's like this big lie, holistic and natural medicine doesn't work. It's, it's all mumbo jumbo. But a lot of our pharmaceuticals come from there. Mm. Um, and it's just a way of control. It's another way. It's another form of control. Uh, mm, that's yeah. the way I see it. Yeah. Um, and again, you have this medicine that's been around for 
depending on who who you ask, around three thousand years. And if you're talking about Ayurveda, uh, the the Indian um, system, that's been around for at least four thousand years. Uh, and if it's been along around for so long, and it's been systematic, there's you can find Chinese texts that are 2,500 years old um, mm. that are still being taught. Like your basic Chinese medicine course is on those texts from 2,500 years ago. Um, so there is, if you're talking about what is the definition of the scientific method, it's observation and seeing if stuff works. Mm. Um, the fact is that we don't know the mechanics of acupuncture yet. But we do know that it does something. We've, there's been MRIs and there's been CTs and all kinds of stuff about what acupuncture does. What acupuncture does to your brain? It changes your wave functions. It causes hormones to to be secreted. There's like a lot of stuff that happens when you're doing acupuncture. We just don't know what the mechanic of inserting a needle and and how that sort of sends the message to your brain. But it's 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 systematic. I can tell you exactly what the outcome of me inserting a needle to your body will do. And it will yeah. always happen. It will always be the same thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I don't approach holistic medicine or even Eastern religion um, in a hippie form. <laughs> mm. I am very logical minded. Um, if we're talking about Buddhism, Buddhism isn't even a religion. It's basically mm. a psychological philosophy about the way our brain and our uh, the way we basically view the world um, objectively, it's yeah. how it's it's what causes us to think and 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 do certain things in an objective, controlled manner. The whole idea of vipassana, vipassana is the the translation is observation. Um, I think that's the, the right the right um, translation. But it's basically observing your mind and observing your reactions to situations, and it's very methodical. Um, it explains. How your eye senses, how your your smell senses, how you're hearing, how your touch—all these things go, come together and create your reality of the world. And again, it has nothing to do with a god or a deity. It's just psychology, mm. um, and that has and that, that's like a common denominator in all these Eastern religions. You can always take the god factor out. You still have a ton of stuff inside there. Yeah, I mean, like because back then they had you know other than war and and famine, they didn't which is big things they didn't really have many distractions you know you'd sit there and master whatever you're doing so if your mastery was uh learning the human body through trial and error you know which is a big part of proper scientific method um you'd figure out it's like the greeks like you look at the ancient greek philosophers like you know i'm just getting into them now and i'm like yeah. like holy crap they were so ahead of their time and we lost it because these guys were yeah. just sitting there thinking or you you look at early astronomy they literally sat there every night probably a glass of wine look at the stars do the map next day same thing and then eventually they map the stars to a degree of accuracy that we can only like it's hard for us to imagine how they did without all the technology. because they had nothing else to do <laughs> yeah they, when you boredom is the uh driver of all innovation a lot of yeah. the time right it's, it's kind of funny because like for me as a shooting instructor mm. um i there's a lot of physio physiological elements to the way you hold your weapon and mm. what the effects of the gun does to your body and how your muscle systems work. And like, for me, I can see by the, by the angles of someone's foot, I can see where his where, he, where he's going to be hitting on the target because mm. there's a whole muscle system that sort of goes around it. And when I started, started studying Qigong and got it gotten like deeper into that, I could see the muscle systems. There's, 
sirens outside their, outside of my house here. Um, I could see during Qigong, like how my different muscles moved and what are the effects of these muscles. And I could take that, that principle and, and take it into shooting or take it into Kav Maga or take it into any physical form. And you can see that, that when you're sort of like completely um, inside that field, that like this is what you're doing, you're dealing with the human body, you can like really dive and see like all these intricacies that you can't see on day to day. If you're being, being taught how to shoot a rifle, you can't really understand what they're talking about muscles and muscle reaction um, until you sort of dive in and do that for like intensively every single day. Um, and, and not only do it, also think about it. It's like, okay, let's see, this is the stance. Where is the energy going? Where is the energy dispersing? dispersing? Um, if I change my, my footing, if I change my, my, my stance, what will that do to my shooting? Um, and you can take that also into any type of martial art. As I said before, I was doing um, Japanese swordsmanship, uh, mostly uh, Kenjitsu and Aikido. Mm. Um, and I, I, I was able to use Aikido um, in my shooting discipline. Um, so it's, it's like really interesting ways of, of observing the human body and how it functions. And only when you go into these disciplines, you can sort of get that kind of stuff. Yeah. Reading it on Wikipedia or whatever, that, that doesn't do anything. Which creates an interesting dichotomy. It's like ironic because if I say, hey, I talked to this guy who's a counterterrorism instructor, but also does Qigong and meditation. A lot of people are like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so how, do, how do you rectify those two worlds? I mean, it makes sense to me, but to the traditional ideology, it's like that is people think they're totally counterintuitive. Well, it started with a discussion I had with the head uh, Lama of a Buddhist monastery. Mm. So I'm sitting there and the whole Buddhist philosophy is like, don't hurt other people. That's like the, 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 like the basic of Buddhism. It's like, don't injure people, don't hurt them, not mentally, not physically. Um, and I was having problems. Um, I was struggling with that concept because I'm a counterterrorism. That that's what mm. I've been doing for the past couple of years. And I sat with him and, and I talked and it's, and eventually we reach this point where he tells me if you're walking down the street and you see and you see someone else being attacked it is your moral obligation to stop that attack mm. you do have the right to hurt someone um in order to stop something worse on a karmic level there's all kinds of different stuff that happens there there's all the rules of karma but essentially there is a sort of moral obligation to do that um so my focus when i talk about counterterrorism fighting is i focus on defense mm. i the way i sort of compensate is that i don't talk too much about attack um the unit that i deal with is mostly defense it's mostly civilian protection i don't deal so much with um raids and attacking enemy targets and stuff like that so that that sort of helps me with my moral issues um but again if i take it even more uh in a more like philosophical direction when you're thinking about some of the greatest um, warriors in history, they were Shaolin monks and samurais. Mm. These are all people who were, who were dove deep into the philosophy of Buddhism and specifically Zen Buddhism. Um, and their outlook of combat is not to go into combat with aggression, which is something that is taught in the IDF quite heavily, mm. um, but with a clear and conscious mind. Um, if you're talking about samurais, it's the understanding that you're already dead. Um, and from there, you can sort of 
uh, traverse combat without thinking about dying because mm. you're already dead. For so those like about a, to die, we salute you, though that's gladiators, but same concept. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's the same idea. Um, and you were talking earlier about like people uh, honing their own art. So again, if you're a swordsman, if you're whatever, you're spending hours upon hours training, but they're not just training to be the best swordsman. It's also a, philosoph it's also a philosophical um, path. Zen basically says, do everything with a conscious thought. You have to be in the here and now at any single uh, point in time. And when you're in the here and now, um, your mind clears, you become calm and you can do mm -hmm. things. So for me, if it's teaching breathing techniques to counterterrorism, it's like I did sort of like a, like a test on a couple of units. I, I trained a certain unit in the regular fashion and, and, I trained, and I trained another unit that's basically the same in my fashion with meditation techniques. Mm. And what I found is that the units that were taught on aggression, when they're going into a surprise action drill, a surprise action drill is that they're going into an arena where they don't know what the targets are, where they're going to be. It's live fire, uh, completely surprise. And they have to go through this sort of like path and, and neutralize their targets without hitting civilians. Mm. Um, so the guys who were doing the aggression training, the ones that, that I was uh, originally training, they would do this, they would succeed. But when I would uh, debrief them at the end of the exercise, they couldn't remember what they were doing. It's like all the blood went to their head and their muscle and they succeeded in the mission, but they couldn't recollect like what the shirt of the, the terrorist was wearing or where the positioning was. They just did it fine. And then I took the other team and I was teaching them breathing techniques that they were doing before entering combat. And they would do the same exercise. They may do it like a second or two, or two slower than the other team, but they could tell me exactly the entire situation. They could remember the civilian, where he was, what he was doing, what he was holding, what the terrorist was holding. It's like, like the amount of detail that they were able to um, absorb during that exercise was significantly higher. Mm. Um, so that's the same idea. If you're going into combat, you want to be able to assess the situation in the best way. And if you're doing aggression training, you're, you're, you're basically focusing all your blood into your muscles, into like tunnel vision. Mm. Um, and that's not what you really want in combat, especially not in um, more complex combat. Yeah. Sometimes so I, it's I, necessary when you're one-on-one, -on -one, but not when you're dealing with, with team exercises and then stuff like that. Yeah. I really want to get into this because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not in the biggest city, but a lot of, people they come into Krav Maga with the idea that I'm going to kill I heard this is the deadliest thing I heard that da, 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 da. and the way I approach it is is not what people are used to because I do I am integrating a bit bit of that sort of let's discuss the world around us let's discuss the psychology let's discuss and it it really turns off a lot of people one because it's some of the things I say they don't really like you know say politically but even if I'm just talking about difficult topics I want them to understand and people come in like, this isn't Kramaga. And I'm like, it is Kramaga. And often I relate it back to uh, the modern founder of Krav, uh, Imi, Imi Lichtenfeld, who said, so one may walk in peace. That's what it's for. And I'm just like, you cannot simply stick to pure aggression and expect to achieve that goal, especially in the modern world. We're acting like a psychopath, even if it was justified from a physical conflict, it's going to end up you in jail. And a lot of people struggle with this. Now, just to confirm again, you are actively teaching at the counterterrorism school 
in Israel right now, right? Well, not. Really. No, I'm, I'm no longer um, the counterterrorism school. I am mm. the commander of a different school, which is also a counterterrorism school, but it's not the counterterrorism school. Yeah, but my point is, you're still actively, heavily involved in that world. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do about 60 days of reserve duty every single yeah. year. I'm almost every week um, doing military service. So, uh, and I was telling a story I had um, about a friend of mine who was in some mysterious Israeli black ops unit and he did he would tell me about his one of many yeah Kramaga training it's just three four hours a day and this is elite special force like elite in the global sense and he come back with no skin on his forearm and they're just abusing them physically and mentally and he came and trained at my school and this is the early days so my guys weren't very developed yet and his technical skill was not there so I, maybe talk about uh, how the Kramaga training is done in the counterterrorism world and then sort of relate it to what you started teaching and why it's important to make that shift. So the first thing you need to understand is that any martial arts needs time. You need time to be able to develop the skills and to be able to develop the muscle um, memory and all that kind of stuff. So most counterterrorism um, qualification courses are three to five weeks long. That is not enough time to actually teach Krav Maga. Mm. The main focus of Krav Maga in counterterrorism school is to change the mental state of the soldier. It's, the idea is to break you down as a regular human being and make you an attack dog. That's like the main focus of Krav Maga and special forces. So like the, the first couple of days of Krav Maga have nothing to do with Krav Maga. It's basically torture. Mm. Um, you're on your knuckles, you're doing all these different exercises that are meant to make you think um, extremely quick, um, make very, very quick decisions and very, very aggressive decisions. It's all these like um, face changing. It's like from calm to, to aggressive, from calm to aggressive. Um, th that's a lot of the, the early training. Eventually you go into like basic um, drills that you need for close combat. Like if you're... If you're a counter-terrorist and you have to go into Krav Maga, you've basically mm. failed your mission. Something yeah. happened to your weapon, you've done something really, really bad. Yeah. Um, but if you have to do it, you have to do it aggressively and, and handle it because somebody's on you right now. Um, if you take the Shaita 13 um, Navy situation field. with the Malmara when they yeah. landed on these yachts with, uh, with terrorists on them, they were basically being lynched and they moved very quickly into Krav Maga. They, they barely had time to pull out their guns. They were actually landing on that ship with paintballs. Um, oh, that. You know, funny story about that situation. I was with Netanyahu when that broke. Mm -hmm. And I saw them panic. Like, okay, you got to like go now. And uh, just funny timing on that. And I just remember like, what idiot told them to take paintballs? <laughs> well, I have another story about that. I was working as a counter-term instructor um, in the TTC. That's a technical training college which is part of Paintball Israel. Um, it's, mm. like a, it's like a, the army division of Paintball Israel. And we supplied the rifles for them to train on mm. before that operation. If I had known why we were supplying them those rifles, <laughs> uh, I would have slapped them silly. Uh, yeah. But again, you, you reach a situation where you're in close combat and you just need to be hyper aggressive to sort of deal with the situation. Um, so, so that's during the certification course, you're doing five weeks of aggression training. Um, you're doing multiple, um, multiple attacker situations. 
basically learning basic punches, kicks, and and grappling. Mm. Um, Enough to sort of get like a basic muscle memory. Most of these units continue to do Krav Maga for the rest of their service, and then they go into the more technical aspect of it. But when they're doing this, the certification, it's mostly aggression training. Um, again, and th- it also sort of um, translates into general combat. So if you're in a unit that does mostly um, uh, like sneak attacks, stuff like that, that you're supposed to be quiet 95% of the time, and suddenly you're discovered, it's like how you change your mental state from being hyper quiet to hyper aggressive. Mm. Um, so that's part of what this training sort of does to you along with whatever else you're doing it during the certification course, which is a lot of um, aggressive fighting techniques um, with rifles and whatever. Um, but it, it all sort of works together along with the Cosmogod training. The entire mm-hmm. course is built to change your way of how you re- react to combat, how you react to danger. Um, and it's like if someone's going to punch you, this is not the first time you've been punched. Yeah. You don't have that, that shock. Like for me, I came into the unit and I was doing the five-week certification course uh, to sort of be accepted into the unit. I was doing it with one of the special forces. And the last day of the course um, was Krav Maga um, testing. And I was put against four people, against four guys. I I was on my own against four guys. And that was sort of like my initiation to the counterterrorism unit. Um, And they kicked my ass. Yeah. Uh, but the, the idea was not to be able to stop those four guys. It was how long could you stand on your feet and fight back? Yeah. Um, the, the point is not necessarily doing technique. It's how mentally you're capable of standing in that situation for as long as possible. Kind of like um, uh, in Star Trek, the, the Kobayashi Maru scenario where you're exactly. not allowed it's to win situation. and you had to figure it out. <laughs> and there's not no Star Wars, but... That. There's, there's no way to cheat that system. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but yeah, it's just like, uh, you know, when I was there, they had these, the classic war stories and all the, like, it's usually some crazy guy in Israel did something ridiculous and it won the war. And it's like, how do you win these unwinnable situations? And, it, and in some cases, it is a test of wills. It's like, how badly did they want to kill you? And how badly do you want to survive? Uh, and that's where it often There's comes a lot from. of other reasons for that also. Um, because of the way that our military is built, we're built completely different from basically any other military, which allows us a certain flexibility that other armies just don't have. Mm. Well, Um, and I don't, I'm always telling people, the idea of a subordinate in most armies disobeying orders is unheard of in most traditional militaries. I'm like, uh, usually it's because someone does that in Israel is why things go right. Because they're like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do this. And it ends up being the correct decision. And then usually you're not that penalized unless it was like some immoral act or something like that. It's not just that. You're taught from the basic, basic, basic command courses that initiative is 90% of winning. Yeah. Um, So it's not just going by the mission plan. It's also using your initiative. Mm. Um, and, And commanders on the lowest level of command can take initiative in combat. It's mm. not it's not completely frowned upon in the Israeli mm. military, where in most militaries, even on a, on a lieutenant level, you can rarely take initiative. Mm. Um, it's it's like in a much higher ranks where you can sort of change positions and do other things that are a bit more um, 
unorthodox, you could say. It's a little off topic, but it's kind of like what, uh, you know, Jocko Willink, I'm sure, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he talks about decentralized command. With, uh, Joe. Yeah. He talks about decentralized command. And I think that's one of the mm-hmm. reasons he was so successful because he's like, I mean, granted it was special forces, but he's like, I put the people who are capable to do the job so that I don't have to babysit them constantly. And if they can't, then yeah. I get rid of them. Um, and it, that sort of same concept, you see it like universally, the ability to make a decision quickly and co- as correctly as possible works at the micro in self-defense and it works at the macro on big war scale, scales war. And uh, mm-hmm. I think the more people try to control, uh, the more things go sideways, if that makes sense. That- that's basically the reason that we won the 73 war, the Yom Kippur war. Mm. Um, the, the Syrian doctrine worked on certain phases that they were supposed to succeed in. And once you reach a phase, you stop and you wait for the next phase. Yeah. And they had basically taken the Golan Heights. And if they would have just taken initiative and, can, and pushed their attack, they would have been into mainland Israel and would have lost the war. But because yeah. they're working on the space system, they received their, their daily objective and they stopped. And that gave enough time for the Israeli military to do counterattacks. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's all about initiative and understanding what, where your, your enemy went wrong and, and abusing mm-hmm. that, that mistake. So like in Krav Maga, the concept of Retsev, it's like, just keep going. Don't let them take off the gas. You keep going until mm-hmm. you find your exit or you, they stop being a threat. Right, uh, God's plan off balance disrupt. Yeah, it's I like always. I always try to approach from the micro because it, 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 like the person to person. Because if you can't scale up, then it's probably not the best strategy overall. Because it needs to be able to pivot at all levels. And uh, that is a very Taoist way of thinking, by the way. <laughs> which I am not. I'm just a guy. You know, it's funny. I was saying, <laughs> I was saying to one of my students the other day, like, oh, I just started. I was listening to this book called uh, Beyond Infinity, David Deutsch, and one of the chapters was just straight up uh, one of the dialogues of Plato. And I was just saying, oh, I, I really like that. I need to listen to the whole thing. And they're like, wait, you've never listened to that at all? Because you, you teach like so- the Socratean method. And I was like, I guess. <laughs> like, I <don't> know. <laughs> it's just, you know, lived experience and you start if we open mind and taking all the stuff and eventually you start to see the patterns, how everything connects, right? So, I mean, I think you did that too, where you're connecting the, the Eastern medicine and uh, everything to counterterrorism, which is, mm-hmm. is, is one of the reasons I want to talk to you. Because when I heard you say that you don't like the term aggression with, with regards to teaching Krav Maga, and that's like, you, that's like blasphemy in the Krav Maga. <laughs> you know, so what do you, I mean, I think you covered a little bit, but maybe expand on that a bit more. Well, again, I don't deal so much with Krav Maga. That's not so yeah. much my field. I do mostly weapons training. Yeah. Um, but again, I find that when you are focused on aggression, aggression means you're taking that adrenaline dump, that adrenaline dump and focusing it on your attack ability. Um, it's like all that all that blood, all that stuff is going into a very narrow focused attack path, which is very good if you're doing one on one. But if you're with multiple attackers, you see the, the way your body functions is actually you have a certain amount of blood in your body. And it goes to different systems. Um, and the more your body goes into your muscles, the less you have for cognition. So if you're keeping your muscles more relaxed, you're less in this thing, you're sort of more 
in like a relaxed phase, allowing the blood to circulate a bit better, then you're spending more blood that will that will go to your cognition, to your mind. Mm. And because of that, your vision, um, you can keep your line of sight. So like the more, the less blood you have in your, in your head, the smaller your line of sight becomes. Yeah, um, tunnel vision. So tunnel vision, but it's not just tunnel vision as a concept, it's an actual physical phenomenon. So if I'm in a, in, a, in a calm situation, a human being can see almost 180 degrees. You can recognize movement at 180 degrees. You won't see what it is, but you know that it's there. But once you're losing blood to your brain and to your eyes, that vision sort of starts to close in. Um, and in combat situations, you want combat awareness. You want to know where your enemy is. You want to know what's going on. And you also want to make good decisions. So when you were, again, when you're working aggressively, your ability, your cognitive ability just drops. So what kicks in, what, it, what, it, what kicks in is your training. So you're doing what you're training. Your muscle memory is what's working. But that's only good for the, for the short-term engagement. Mm. If you're going long-term engagement, like more than a couple of seconds or more than a minute, you're going to want to understand what's going on around you and you need blood for that. Yeah. Um, so, so I approach combat in a more calm manner. Now, if you sort of look at all the World War II movies or the Vietnam movies and all that kind of stuff, you always have that st that sergeant or that major who's standing in the middle of a gunfight and he's yeah. chewing his tobacco or smoking a cigar and he doesn't give a damn about what's going on around him. That's because he's in control. Yeah. He is not in aggression. He is in a calm, zen-like fashion, understanding that panic and being ultra-aggressive doesn't help you in that situation to make smart decisions about how to handle your troops mm. now i may want that on a micro level like my specific soldier i may want him to be hyper aggressive but me as a commanding officer that i need to be in control that's not good for me mm. it's like the uh apocalypse now like i love the smell of napalm in the morning that guy is just like i'm surfing in the middle of the vietnam war <laughs> it's uh that, that's also a coping mechanism with combat in general yeah. It's like either you shut down and sort of allow things to happen um, or, or like things just get much worse in your mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I mentioned when we were talking before about my, my experience in the army wasn't great from a mental state, but the, I learned so much. And one of the big observations I got out of it is people don't know how they're going to respond to that hyper stress till it happens. Cause I, I saw many, soldiers and we to be honest we didn't see anything like you experienced like not even close and even when they took food away from us in training or lack of sleep you'd see like the speed team like the the top student guy just collapse into animals and i there's a situation i remember it was definitely they did it on purpose i think simulating the lebanon war where they lebanon two where they're like oh there's food coming it's coming tomorrow and no it's not it's coming tomorrow it's, no it's not and then you know i quickly realized they're they're not giving us the food guys and and uh what happened was we you know you got these big crappy backpacks and we had my squad had forgotten about some tuna cans that we had that were buried under some equipment and we didn't know and it's like four days in of they're not feeding us and someone in our squad found that uh, tuna. And like, oh, we need to share this. I was like, don't you dare. And they're like, that's really selfish. I'm like, no, 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 no. You watch what happens. If they find out we have food after four days, 
and like I talked to them and they understood like because I'm like look how they're behaving like they're like animals right now and we just quietly like you know ate it and it's and I realized Reality like, that, live, definitely. yeah it's like they would have <laughs> there would have been a hundred guys on us accusing of us like a witch hunt like you hit a food on us and I'm like some of those guys that were acting like that I'm like they they were already on the way fast paced to like lieutenant school and you just realize it doesn't matter how much you're training going through the courses is not everyone is capable yeah. of that you, high stress you never know how you're going to yeah. react in the situation like for me i mean we were in combat for a couple of days and you sort of you sort of blocked it out it was like the early days of cell phones and i was talking to some friends of mine and they started shooting at us and i'm like oh they just began shooting i need to uh, turn off the phone now so yeah. i can uh, deal with this and they're like what what's, what's going on in your side and i'm like click and i'm yeah. and i'm back into combat and, you know it's uh it was funny um but again like for me it was like two or three nights of sleep deprivation yeah um so that's like complete nothing can can prepare you for that um and I never thought I would be able to handle myself that well in a combat situation. Yeah. Um, later on, going on actual operations and stuff like that, like when you have to make like these really hard decisions, um, not even necessarily under fire. It's just like even giving the the order to open fire is sometimes extremely stressful. Um, mm. And I, and I was surprised how relatively well I handled it. But but you know every single time you go on an operation, you have those butterflies and you have yeah. no idea how. How it's going to end and what's going to happen on your on the way there and how anyone is going to react um and and luckily for me i've always had like pretty good guys around me um and it's always the ones you don't expect that actually handle things better yeah um like one yeah. of uh canada's greatest war heroes smoky smith in world war ii he he got demoted twice in peacetime but when war like combat happened it was like the guy was an animal he took out an entire german tank squad by himself you know like just crazy and then demoted twice in peace <laughs> and it's what we think uh, a good soldier looks like because of hollywood or yeah. whatever is not always not always the case and you know it's i get a lot of people who come in vancouver is a peaceful city relative to a lot of places but people here often are convinced that it's like oh it's such a dangerous city and i'm like no it's not like, just don't go hang around in the junkie areas. And even then, they're not even that aggressive. Like, homeless people in the States are way more aggressive than, and, than the ones here. Like, it's like, listen, if the guy's having a schizophrenic episode, which you can see, maybe don't walk past him. Uh, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's not that bad. But I get people coming in. They're like, oh, like, I like anxiety and fear and all that. And, I'm, and the hardest part is convincing people to stay. I'm like, I understand you might not like some of the things I'm saying, but stay long enough because what I find is that Kramaga is a form of exposure therapy for those who are overly sensitive to stimulus yeah. or had PTSD or had, um, and a lot of times the system, the counseling system doesn't you know, I have students before that they're making really good progress, but they go to their counselor and they're like, I'm having panic attacks. And they're like, you need to stop going to that. I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to keep going. And, you know, yeah. what I was, I was actually just listening that some of the most effective forms of therapy uh, are you have to deal with that anxious exposure therapy 
uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, all this stuff that forces your nervous system to get used to it and calm down. Because obviously some people have different levels of stimulus. Uh, you know, an introvert is going to be much, much easily, more easily triggered uh, versus an extrovert who can take a lot of stimulus before they, they kind of snap. And it's, again, it's just all interconnected and getting people to realize like, Today, I'm making you super aggressive training and getting you exhausted, <clears throat> but tomorrow we're calm and I'm talking about something uncomfortable. And if you can make it through that, it's, uh, it's sort of the method I've found to sort of channel that so one may walk in peace. You're not just learning techniques. You're not just learning aggression. You're learning all of it so that you can hopefully have a, a, a peaceful <clears throat> time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's not just that. It's also... Um... You know, people who suffer from, from post-traumatic stress, it's not just necessarily from military or stuff like that. It can be mm. uh, from sexual harassment and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and there's this whole thing of how you conceive of yourself. Are mm. you a victim or not? Um, and a lot of people start out from that victimhood. And doing any type of martial art, but specifically Kav Maga, gives you a sense of self um, that you won't receive anywhere else I, I remember for myself like I was an officer and everything but I was a very shy guy I didn't have that much um, self-confidence as I was a good officer I was a good soldier but I, I didn't have like like the, the I, I wasn't this outgoing person I was very very mm -hmm. shy not like I am today um, but a lot of it happened during the the counterterrorism certification when I was going through that Kav Maga it was like that built up my self-esteem that built up my character in such a way that if I survive five weeks of that, mm. it's like I can do anything. I can go hit on girls in a club. I can <laughs> do anything I want to do, um, which I would never have fathomed of, of being able to do before that. Like today, I have my own business. It's like something that I would have never thought of as, as a kid, um, mm. of running my own business. Um, so it's the same with just regular Kav Maga. People come in with um, a low self-esteem and, and just doing this training can build you up. And, and that's extremely important for your situation, sort of understanding who you are and how much of control you have of your life and who you are. Mm. Reminds me of the book uh, Startup Nation on Israel. You ever hear about it? Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit propaganda, Stop but it. it was basically uh, <laughs> talking about, you know, is, Israel is so innovative and creative because um, people go through that. Like a lot of special force people end up owning companies and they end up being innovators and they're leaders and i think that early exposure to you know, we, what are your limits and be comfortable with them and know how to manage it physically and mentally and then then you become like you said you become more confident and, and push through it and uh, it's something that's very lost here <laughs> in north america people are so soft and everything makes them sensitive to everything <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's true for anyone coming out of any military. Mm. Your sense of self, especially in combat units, is uh, is completely different than if you just do the the high school college thing. It's like, yeah, what have you accomplished with your life up until this point, and and who are you? The military sort of forces you to ask these questions about yourself and yeah. about what you want to be and who you want to be and what kind of person you want to be. Um, and that sort of only happens when you're thrown into extreme situations, not even combat, even basic training, um, can put you in this mental state. That's okay. I'm, I'm more than what I think I am. Yeah. Um, 
But if you're talking specific, specifically about Startup Nation, it's what I talked about earlier, which is the whole idea of initiative. Yeah. Um, nothing has any, nothing has rules, nothing has borders. Anything is free, anything can be done. If you have enough chutzpah, if you're in a, uh, if you have the balls to do it. Um, yeah. yeah. It's funny because in Israel, chutzpah is a good thing, but if you say chutzpah here, it's like not. Or was it the other way? I can't remember. <laughs> Anyways, um, but so back to PTSD. So I, I, I did a, 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 I was going for my bachelor's, but got my associates in psychology. And one of the professors, I did a, a course called Psychology of Genocide. And one of the professors who came was actually a UBC, University of British Columbia professor as a lecturer who was a Holocaust survivor. And his expertise was PTSD. And he was saying at the time, this is t- six, seven years ago, they told us the research. So it made probably a little out of date, but he said 12%, on average, 12% of people exposed to a traumatic event will develop some kind of PTSD. Now, interesting, he said uh, Holocaust survivors were a little less, which is an interesting uh, statistic. But that's interesting because second generation Holocaust survivors um, also suffer from a form of Yeah. Which is, yes. is interesting. And I wonder how much of it is perception. For example, I have this theory. Now, I don't think it would apply in Israel, but because uh, I, I can speak from my experience, is that one of the, I think for North American or Western soldiers, one of the traumatic experiences may not even be the combat. It's reintegrating into civilian life where you've just experienced an extreme. Like I hear stories from like Afghan and uh, Iraq vets being like coming back and be like, you're also spoiled. Like you don't know what, what not having anything is and that sort of reintegration. And then people just be like, you have PTSD. And then it just, that, that constant conflict from a social perspective creates it. Well, let's say in Israel, everybody goes to the army. While there are for sure people obviously have PTSD in Israel, I wonder if the percentages are lower in a, in a country like Israel compared to somewhere else. I doubt else. it. I think the percentage of post-traumatic stress in Israel is skyrocketing. Skyrocketing? Um, oh, yeah. And I, I call it the post-traumatic stress state. I don't think mm. anybody in this country um, doesn't have some form of post-traumatic stress. Mm. Um, and I think especially in the past couple of years, it's even been worse. Uh, the rocket attacks and that kind of stuff. Um, like, if you take, like, 20 years ago, you would have a suicide bombing every once in a while. And, mm. you know, the country would be in an uproar, but that would be it for a while. But when you're constantly getting hit by rockets, like, every single day or every other week, like, for a long, long time, mm. um, there are generations of, of children that were born under rocket attacks. They're now in the military. They're 18 years old with post-traumatic stress even before they joined the military. Mm. Um, because... Since 2004, something like that, they've been hit by, uh, by constant rocket attacks. Um, and of course, all of our parents, you know, they, they were all in wars. Um, Holocaust survivors, and so, everyone has some form of post-traumatic stress. In Israel, it's just because everyone has it, you don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> like the norm. People are stressed because it's the norm in this country. Um, yeah. It actually yeah. makes sense because uh, I heard one of the uh, coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan, one of the you know, people always think it's a special force guys that have PTSD, but actually they have a pretty low rate. No, and much the, lower. 
Yeah, and the the higher group was actually the drivers because it's like is today the day I had an IED. So it's probably a similar similar sort of mechanism. Whereas today the day I get hit by a rocket or someone I know who gets hit by a rocket. I, I find that control stress. has a lot to do with it. Hmm. So if you're a special special operations person, you are very much in control of your mission. Hmm. You get to choose the mission. You get to choose the the hour of of deployment, and you're basically initiating combat. The difference with, with regular soldiers, regular infantry or drivers or whatever you're talking about, they're doing that mundane stuff and they don't know when they're going to get hit. They don't know when they're going to get the ambush. It's like that's the constant stress. So if you're in, and that's also the reason why um, when a unit gets hit, the, the, the psychology today basically says is that you need to put that unit back into action as quickly as possible. Because they need a, a sense of success. If you get hit and you take these people out of combat, not only have they have the trauma of the, the attack, they also have the trauma of failing and retreating. Mm. Um, so, so I think that's generally why special operations, I'm sure they have a lot of, of post-traumatic stress, but it's a bit more controlled in that situation. And I want to go back to something that you said earlier, and that's the changing from military life to civilian life. For me, um, as I said, I do a lot of reserve uh, duty during the year. It's mostly a day here, a day there. I, I sort of uh, go back and forth. But every once in a while, I go into service for like two weeks. Mm. And my wife already knows I have post-reserve duty depression. Um, when I go back into my regular civilian life after doing two weeks of intense training, um, it's like nothing in civilian life has any meaning. Mm. The intensity of what you're doing the um, moral righteousness of what you're doing. It's like you're, you're, you are a complete human being when you're in the military. It's like you're working with every single aspect of who you are and what you are. And suddenly you go back to civilian life and you're stuck in traffic jams and you're doing your study or your, or your mundane work or whatever. It's like nothing has that profound meaning like when you're in the military. And sometimes it sounds stupid. You're a grunt in some military unit but it's still profound doing this kind of work. Mm. And like, if you're talking about American or Canadian military, you're, you're out of your country. You're going for months outside of your country doing something extraordinary. Um, and then you sort of, sort of come back and you're, you're, your most stress is, will I be able to make my coffee before I leave my house in the morning? <laughs> um, and it's- It's a it's big really, stress. Really, really, <laughs> it is for a lot of people. <laughs> But again, you also look around you and people are, excuse my words, but bitching about these stupid things where you've been into combat, you've seen things, you've done things. Your complaints are nothing compared to real world problems. Mm. And it's hard to make that, um, that differentiation as a civilian. Yeah. Um, so I, I if can you're relate gonna... to that for sure. <laughs> my, again, my experience, I'm not going to say I had some grand whatever but it's like coming back to vancouver one of the safest places that i can think of that i've ever been and the stuff that my sister and my mother were complaining about and i was just like i was very angry i'm like you're all a bunch of brats like you don't know nothing about discomfort and you know as i said my mental health story is i think it's genetic depression runs in our family so then you go into the military where i did not feel supported as a, a lone soldier 
and I didn't have very many friends and then just no sleep and it compounded, you know, I came back then reintegrating and then <clears throat> I had a manic depressed, something triggered a manic depressive episode. And I was like, this is not normal. And that's where I started my journey to realizing something is wrong. And it's been, you know, 10 years now since that, and I'm still working on it um, and working on it. I now I'm married and my wife has uh, PTSD. She's finally coming out about it more and we're fixing it. And here you have two people with strong personalities who are aggressive and have mental health <laughs> issues, but it's, it's that must be fun. It is fun, <laughs> <laughs> but it's almost at the same time as like we both understand and we're working through the same problem together. It's a challenge, um, but uh, I can say that before, so, you know, pre-army when I, people would be like, you know, I had anger problems as a teenager uh, or I, uh, I don't fit in anyway, which makes the problem worse, but it's like my example that I give it often with the depression is um, people are like, Hey, you need to be happy. You need to be happy. Why can't you be happy? Why, why don't you do now? My baseline <laughs> happiness is, is lower. Like what appears my, what uh, my happy is appears to be not happy to a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. And so my comparison, I went on SSRIs for a while and yeah. what that allowed me to do is give me the perspective. And I was like, so they're telling me, Hey, just roll with us. We're circles. And here's John depressed a square and then SSRIs made me a circle. And then when I went off of SSRIs, I'm like a jaggedy circle. But now when they're like, hey, you need to do this or be like this, like I can understand it. And it's like relating what's inside to what other people are telling you about you. And so being, you know, uh, with my wife, who has a very similar personality in some ways, she'll get mad at me for saying that. And in other ways, not. Um, it's like, oh, this is how I'm acting. And this is what people are telling me about it and that relating to. But if you come back into a world like the civilian where nobody now Israel is an interesting case because that a lot of people do understand, which is, is interesting that it's not more dealt with in, in Israel when you're going. So in Canada, I don't think more, that people more understand in Israel. I think everyone yeah. suffers from it. But again, there's a there's a problem with um understanding that we're actually post-traumatic i say that everyone's post-traumatic because i can see it from my point of view mm. but everyone is and nobody understands that they are because you become um, the circle now right <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so, it's like i mean there, there's like little comprehension of it yeah so because yeah as i mentioned when i was there and I like I did see the Kaban, the psychologist near the end. I'm like, listen, I'm older than most of these people. I volunteered. I don't have a support network. I'm not doing well. I need to get out. I've already served more time than I'm supposed to. There's it's more complicated with me, but I won't get into it. Mm -hmm. He's like, listen, I think you shouldn't be in the army anymore for a whole bunch of reasons. But there's nothing I can do for you other than give you this low psychological profile, which will screw you for the rest of your life in Israel. So I'm not going to do that because you're not you're not schizophrenic or you're not anything like that. And I'm like, well, wonderful. And it's and I imagine it's a little better 10 years later. But I don't imagine if what from what you're saying that Israelis still don't want to talk about it. Uh, well, I think that the past couple of months, um, there was this one guy who basically torched himself in front of the Social Security because of the way that they were treating his uh, situation. 
Mm-hmm. And that caused a big uproar. And there's like there's a big, big change now in the Ministry of Defense with how they handle post-traumatic stress in the military. Mm-hmm. And that sort of brought up the whole conversation in general about people with this situation. So there is like more people um, knowing about this now. Um, and it is talked more now. But like everything else, it will be swept under the rug eventually again, um, especially yeah. with uh, the pandemic and everything else that the country needs to deal with. Um, it's like not that important enough for people to deal with. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back to what you were talking about, your your feet, your um, how you dealt with depression and everything. And, and for me, like the one thing that, that, that first let me deal with depression was understanding the basics of Buddhist thought. Mm. Um, my dog is clicking here, so you may hear some noises right. here in the back. Um, so the basic tenets of Buddhism is that the world is suffering. And that mm. is awesome. It's like, if your baseline is that the world is suffering, that's a good philosophy for me to sort of understand because I'm suffering. I'm suffering with depression. I'm suffering with whatever. And from there, they go and they say, okay, so if the world is suffering, there needs to be a cost to suffering. And if there is a cost to suffering, then let's try and break that down, understand what's causing my suffering. And you sort of start to look objectively at all these things that are causing your depression. Now, again, depression has a lot of genetic depression is difficult because there's a lot of chemical stuff that's going on that's really, really hard to fight. But as you say, if you have a partner that's living a similar life, and you're able to control this and sort of put a mirror to each other and saying, look, this is what you're doing right now. This is how you're living right now. And try and look at it objectively. Then suddenly you can sort of do something about it. Because mm-hmm. when you're in depression, you're in depression. And you re- it's really hard to sort of understand that you're in depression. It's, it's really hard to um, even understand why you're in depression, especially when it's based on your, chemi- your brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I hate when people say, you need to be happy. You need to get on with your life. You need to do these things. That's just like the worst thing you can say to someone who's in depression. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like more try and observe the, the actual reality of, of how you are. You have a loving family. You have a job. You have whatever. And sort of from there, start to try and build it, um, even though that's, even that's not simple. In the end, you need to learn how to rewire your brain. And the only way to do that do that is either on medication or meditation and i'm mm-hmm. the one for meditation yeah in general. you know i've again so meditation has only really recently been started being looked at from like a real scientific perspective with scans and all that and like the last few years has really taken off and i wonder sometimes like the breathing to me seems to be have immense uh, physiological reactions for example wim hof breathing which i try to do as much as i can it has measurable notice of like Benny Gesserit style, if you know the reference, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, biochemistry effects. And then the, the, the quiet aspect of meditation is like rest in the conscious mind because our bodies are not designed for all the stimulus we're getting, all the stresses we're getting. And if you can't consciously learn, because the subconscious is still, we're so far from understanding it. But the conscious, we understand a little bit more because that's our lived experience is just the quiet aspect. You know, I find a lot of one of the reasons I and a lot of people find difficult to get into meditation is all the woo woo cultural stuff. And I've started telling people like, listen, it's just about being quiet. 
you know, we give mm -hmm. quiet time to children. It's the same thing. And just learning just to, to turn your nervous system from redlining down back to zero. And if it's only five minutes, because it's very hard to realize when you're getting even slightly stressed, you know, if you, the, the, the frog in the boil pot slowly turning on, doesn't realize it's the same thing. And so you just have to consciously realize you're probably getting slowly turned up more than you think. So you just, the breathing for your physiological chemistry and then the quiet for just calm the mind and calm the nervous system. Uh, and I think if we can just simplify the explanations to make it more universal, it'll be much more accepted because, you know, if like one culture doesn't want to listen to oh the other culture, but if it's just like, oh, it's simple, uh, it's more yeah. easy. What, what I tell my patients when I'm giving them meditation instructions is that this is not um, this has nothing to do with Buddhism. This has nothing to do with some type of Eastern culture. This has nothing to do with uh, spirituality. This is a technical physiological function. If you are enhancing the amount of oxygen in your body, you are causing a cascade effect in your brain to release endorphins. Mm. Um, endorphins make you feel calmer. This is a completely chemical induced function of a technical thing that you're doing um now if you want to ask add the more spiritual aspects of it of sort of working with your mind and sort of reading about your own psychology then that's fine but on a basic technical level just sitting down and breathing and relaxing does all these really crazy chemical effects the longer you do it the crazier these effects will be on your body so yeah. if you're doing five minutes, that's nice. But if you can do it for half an hour, that's better. And if you could do it for two or three hours a day, that's even better. Eventually, mm -hmm. you'll also get the psychological aspects of it. But originally, it's just a chemical reaction. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like, again, that, that's my logical view on these things, first of all. And for most people, they can't sit for even five minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's where I love Qigong, because Qigong is a movement-based form. So you're still meditating, but you're sort of moving your body around. Like for me, I couldn't do more than 10 minutes of sitting meditation in the beginning. Um, I was much more focused on Qigong, but Qigong was able to slowly build those pathways in my mind that I could do things calmer. I could do them for longer. And eventually I could sit for 12 hours straight meditation. But this is nothing that I'm, I'm a ginger. I can't, I mean, you know, everything is sort of hyper. Um, and I was eventually able to bring myself to doing 12 hours of sitting meditation in those monasteries. And nobody was forcing me. Um, in fact, the sessions were an hour long or two hours long. I just sat through them for 12 hours. And mm. you reach these really awesome effects of, of what meditation can do to your body. Um, mm. Like for me, I was able to regain my ability to sleep, which I hadn't had, 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 uh, I hadn't had a good night of sleep for years before that. Mm. Um, so it's so it, there is just a basic technical aspect of this that yeah. it's beneficial and it has nothing to do with spirituality yeah so it's a uh, for a lot of people myself included i'm one of those people can't sit still um trying to do i i i even struggle with um routine it's really difficult for me for whatever whatever the long list of problems i have who knows it doesn't really matter that much but for me as i'm i sort of said earlier like the new research come it's it's actually old but it's now popularized in mainstream because of people like uh, tim ferris if you know who that is is uh johns hopkins university and the maps university they've done a lot of research in mdma uh ketamine and psilocybin 
for yeah. dealing with these kind of issues. And I've tried, let's say, two of those three. And I can say, because uh, where I am, it's uh, drug use is um, not frowned upon. It's not necessarily legal, but it's uh, not necessarily frowned upon. So I'm fortunate. Were you sense. doing this in a, in a clinical setting or just? So like, here's you know? the thing. No, allegedly not. Nah. I'm not going to get in trouble for it, but the, um, you know, the research coming out, they always insist clinical setting because the reason is you never know that one guy who's actually a little off his rocker takes it. They're going to have a problem, but then mm -hmm. you realize that, well, some of these drugs people take recreationally all the time, all the time. and they don't really have any problems and they're relatively safe. And I can say, uh, one of those, uh, substances very much helped me with my depression and the other substance, which was a more recent experience, made me think maybe I had PTSD. And while meditation certainly works according to the data and, and all the experience, for me, I'm like, I don't have time to sit on a mountaintop for a year. <laughs> like a lot of these yeah. rich guys will be like, oh, just go on a meditation retreat. It's like a lot of people can't do that. So and there is some research coming out of Israel on, the, on these subject matters. Uh, do you have any experience with that stuff? Because I know Israel is very strict about this, this kind of stuff. Um, so I don't have direct experience with this stuff. Um, mm. I am actually, I just uh, scheduled an appointment for next week. I'm going to try and go through somatic experience mm. um, therapy. Um, I worked at a mental health, uh, private mental health hospital for about five years as an acupuncturist yeah. and the guy who was heading that hospital he was doing um, psilocybin and some other um, some other stuff mm. um, in his own private clinic uh, and he had really good success with that but again it's not I've read all the research I haven't done it directly or, or seen anyone doing it directly yeah. I know Israel that uh, tough, ayahuasca I is very popular also yeah. Um, not generally there's very people it's illegal in Israel I don't know wh where they're doing it but some people mm -hmm. um, fly to Europe to do uh, ayahuasca um, and there was actually a very big television show um, that was on Netflix I think uh, a while back four or five years ago that my friend was a producer on mm -hmm. um, that dealt with post-traumatic stress with soldiers um, and and chemicals um it's like this whole story they're going to colombia to rescue a friend of theirs um i don't know what it's called in english i forgot the name it's really it's, it's actually a really good show if you sort of want to see israeli mentality and how we deal with, with stress yeah. um not fauda so, which i had to stop watching it was too no no not fauda <laughs> um I, I need to google to see how what, what it's called uh, I'll remember this in a second. Um, so anyways, I don't have any direct experience, but again, I have read all the, all the research and I am completely for it. Mm. Um, and, I, and, and I would actually like to try this stuff myself. Mm. Uh, my wife isn't happy with me going in this direction. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't done anything about that yet, but uh, I, I think I would um, like to experience it eventually. Um, on my own terms, I, 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 have, I have been terrified of drugs most mm. of my life um, because, you don't. I've seen what, it, what even recreational yeah. stuff does to people um, working in a psychiatric hospital and so forth. I know that 95% of the time, nothing happens and it's all mm. fine. Um, yeah. But I'm scared that my chemistry will 
not yeah, that's, that. you know, like for me, I did not like Vancouver is like a drug hub, if you will. It's well known. We were like marijuana was totally casual here, even before it was legalized in Canada. Yeah. Um. So it's I'm in a bit more of a accepting location. But like what I realized is so much of like the Reagan era anti-drug message, which was so full of misinformation, you know, Nixon and all that. And it yeah. just terrified a lot of people. And like I come from like a more traditional conservative background per se not exactly but like the idea of drugs is so foreign but as you do research and you realize oh all you need to know is what dose what's too much what are the signs of addiction how do you be careful am i even someone who can take this you know if you have a history of schizophrenia etc then a lot of them are not on the table you do not take them or or, or stuff like that. You just have to be honest. Where they go sideways is people yeah. are not honest with themselves about, or I know what I'm doing, or they just take a huge spoonful and then they have a serious problem. Like MDMA, for example, MDMA itself, while you certainly could overdose, um, a lot of the horror stories you hear is from party worlds where they were the dealers were cutting stuff in like heroin or, or uh, you don't know where the stuff is coming from. That's yeah, the, but it, the, the yeah. pure stuff is, uh, is a little bit is, like I, from if you take too much, at least in my experience, it's like, you, I don't want anymore. Like I'm done. Um, but if it's mixed with stuff, then obviously that's a serious problem. Um, as far as the show is called when heroes fly, by the way, oh, when heroes fly, no, I pick it out it. on the Netflix. Or whatever. Yeah. As, <laughs> yeah. As far as psilocybin, to my knowledge, there is no recorded overdose. You're just mm-hmm. going to be on the moon and yeah. it's not a pleasant experience if you take too much, but it's, uh, I, you'll come back. Is my, my well, the, the thing is when I was, um, in the East and, uh, my friends back home, everyone was doing some form of drugs, mm. recreational or like heavier stuff, whatever. But when I came back, um, I had told people of some of my experiences through meditation. And I can tell you for sure that I had LSD type of um, experiences just through meditation. Mm. Um, the whole uh, colors and, and stuff like that. And the warping of time and understanding of the fabric of time and space and all, yeah. kind of, all that kind of stuff. That happened from some deep meditation also. Um, and even doing some forms of meditation, like Vipassana is 12 days of, of basically being quiet. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, that can actually be very scary because a, a lot of stuff comes up there. So I'm, I'm figuring that the calming of your mind, basically the use of recreational drugs or, 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 or mushrooms or whatever, um, it has a very similar effect to what you're doing during meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a more direct approach to doing that um it like opens up a gate that you could reach through meditation just takes a lot more work to get yeah. there um but the i think the chemical effects are probably very similar i know that the whole idea of alpha waves and that kind of yeah. stuff or delta i don't remember what it was um is very very similar with the meditation and some forms of uh, mushrooms yeah um, and my understanding is because your brain produces naturally uh, dmt which is what mm-hmm. they believe causes you to dream. And it's somehow related to pineal gland, which also then connects into mysticism and like the third eye. So it's possible that you're just hacking your, your own dream system when you do that. I, I, I don't know if it's the same as like, I don't have any knowledge or experience with LSD, but I'm sure it's DMT and that is a similar sort of uh, a psychedelic 
yeah. experience, but I don't know much. <laughs> That's where my, <laughs> my knowledge sort of runs out on that topic. But it's just for me, it's like I grew up, no drugs, no this, da 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 da. Rules are rules. And as I grow older, I'm like, rules are made by people who want to control sometimes. And there's more to the stories than you think. And it's not always what you thought. And if our goal is to optimize the human experience, then we need to be a bit more open minded about all right, the methods, because the one size fit all model to me needs to stop. It just it needs to yeah. stop. It's still being pushed on us today. And it's what I call a uh, lazy administrative process to get the things done and manage at scale. But it, in the end, it doesn't really work very well. Which is what I love about Orion, uh, about Far East Medicine. Um, mm. I mean, the, the basis is that every single person is an individual and they're, they're made up of different functions. Um, and, and you can call it the same disease, but it has like different manifestations in each person. Mm. Um, and depression in one person is not depression in another person and taking a general SSRI won't work on everyone. Um, taking all these different antidepressants that doesn't work for everyone and it has different effects for everyone. Um, and there are other ways of dealing with it. Just most, most people don't want to do the hard, the, the real hard work. Um, which is the form of meditation and that kind of stuff, which just takes longer than just take popping a pill and trying to feel yeah. better i found uh the only time i was able to really meditate was in the sauna which i don't have access to right now but we we actually ordered uh one of those small saunas that can go in the home so i'm mm-hmm. i'm hoping to pick up the practice a little bit again when when we get it in five months because the supply chain issues are killing everything right now. um again so you- I, I, i'm like for me it's 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 not trying to pick up the, the idea of sitting meditation that's like the hardest form mm-hmm. of meditation to do you can easily do lying meditation, like just lie in your bed and breathe. You just need time for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's doing, um, you can even do your Krav Maga just really, really slow. That's basically Tai Chi or Qigong. Right. Um, and the, the idea is to focus on your muscle movement. It's like bringing your observation to the way that your body is moving and bring your observation to each muscle and each movement and each breath that you're taking. And that's meditation. That's bringing yourself to the here and now, and that's all you really need to do. Um, yeah. Anything else is basically uh, uh, what's the English word? Um, My Hebrew's gone. I I am not yeah. sure. I had bad Hebrew when I was there. So I <laughs> yeah, I literally learned that excuses. Hebrew. That's the word. Excuses. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> anything else is excuses. You can always yeah. anything you can do can be a form of meditation. Basically, washing the dishes could be meditation, as long as you're you're here now and you're doing so. Yeah, it's funny you uh, mentioned that. I had a student tell me that that they were washing dishes and they realized they were getting really angry and they clued into some of the stuff I said. Like, oh my my state is really not in a good place. uh, (laughs) So yeah, you're definitely right there. Now, um, you have a presentation of some kind that you you give nowadays. some of the things you've talked about is that stuff that would be in the presentation, or is that uh, is that something? Yeah, else? I have a sort of like a lecture that I give. It's called "Between Gaza and Buddha," mm. um, which is basically my story. It's my story in the military and how I traveled uh, the east. And basically, during the lecture, we go through each and every monastery and my story in the Far East, and I sort of like give these glimpses of the philosophy. So. I reach Nepal. I do the the, the Buddhist uh, the Buddhist philosophy. I go to Japan. I talk about Zen Buddhism. I go to India. 
I talk about Hinduism and I talk about uh, Vipassana and all these different things that I, that I learned on the way. So the idea is to sort of see my path through depression and post-trauma, but also sort of get a glimpse into these philosophies and hopefully give people the option of saying, okay, this is interesting. I want to read more um, or I want to know more about these things. I'm not trying to convert anyone to any specific philosophy because I'm not any of these. I'm a bit of everything. Um, and the idea is to sort of break away from your conventional thinking, the way that you've mm -hmm. been taught and you've been brought up and see that there are other ways of thought. There are other ways of conducting yourself in this world. Um, and that's, and the beauty of it is it, it, it all interwinds with my stories while traveling. It's with all these little anecdotes about meeting people on the, on, on the way. I, I meet this American, in, uh, Native American uh, shaman and uh, meet all these really, really crazy characters on the way. And that, that all sort of goes through this, through this lecture. Mm. Yeah. That's and you give that uh, to soldiers or where is that that you normally do that? Um, I do it for, uh, in Israel, you have like these, it's called like a, like a lounge group. It's like mm -hmm. a bunch of people that just have like these weekend lectures at their houses. They bring in their mm -hmm. friends. Um, there's lots of them in Israel. I do it for companies. I've done it in the military a couple of times, uh, but not in an, in an official capacity. I'm working mm -hmm. on that also. That's um, the challenge, I don't think right? the army sort of really wants to talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I was once offered to teach it, to do it in front of high schoolers, and I decided not to do it mm. um, because I don't want to give people a bad impression of what you could come out with the military. Mm. I mean, it's my specific story, um, but I, I don't believe in, in, in hurting for the motivation of people to going into combat units. Mm. Um, they sort of need to have their own path and their own way. Even though my, my story in the end is sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a happy ending, but it's, it's manageable. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's, it's I just whoever asks me to talk, I'll talk. <laughs> that makes sense. Now, the, yeah. the acupuncture, we didn't really delve into that. Uh, why acupuncture? So, as I said, my original experience was studying Qigong in Florida. And that school was also an acupuncture school. So I had my first experience with acupuncture when I was there during the military. And I had these crazy experiences through acupuncture that like really opened my mind to this whole world. Um, and when I came back from the Far East, I decided I want to continue um, dealing with the spiritual aspect, but I also want to be, I also want to have a proper job. Um, mm. And acupuncture seemed like a good way. I could open up my own uh, clinic. I can help people with their traumas. My original reason to, for going into acupuncture was to help people with depression and, and post-trauma. Um, I actually deal mostly with pain today, uh, physical pain. But I also do the whole other stuff, uh, trauma and, and depression. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was looking for a way to uh, make a living, but also leave a spiritual path. And because I was so focused on Qigong, I wanted to learn acupuncture to have more knowledge about the Chinese aspects of, uh, of medicine and philosophy and bodily functions. And eventually that led to a career in acupuncture. I was also teaching Qigong, but acupuncture became like, a, it's in general, acupuncture is four years of study. It's a big, big field of, of study. Um, and I sort of really enjoyed it. And it, 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 it it gives results and it's uh, it's a good mythology of work. 
And for me, it's also, um, I used to deal with more holistic, spiritual energy kind of stuff, which mm. I stopped doing because it was affecting me mentally. Mm. And acupuncture gives me a certain distance from my patients that, it, that allows me to treat without having the psychological effects sort of rebound back onto me when you're dealing with, with energies, mm. um, which sounds kind of weird and strange, but yeah. <laughs> it, uh, so, you know, that reminds me uh what was oh i read this book called against empathy because i'm mm -hmm. i'm all for compassion i'm not so much for empathy and the, the example that they used was i think a buddhist monk of some kind in an mri and they said okay we want you to channel uh compassion and it lit up the whatever parts of his brain and they're like how do you feel he's like oh i feel great and then they said the same thing for empathy and he did it and it lit up the empathetic parts of the brain that said they know he wasn't faking and he's like how they're like how do you feel it's like i'm exhausted right it's the same sort of concept yeah. that when you're channeling that and so again coming back to that woo woo thing it's like that's preposterous but then you hear stories like that where they're cooking them up to an fmri and they can see it in real time and they're like no this is an actual thing it's like um you know i'm not into astrology or any of that stuff but i wonder if there is something to it the energies of the universe I, you know a lot of those people are kind of con artists but um the, the deep rooting thing behind it there's probably some truth that we just don't understand yet because it is possible just from a metaphysical perspective if let's say the universe has a pattern to it that's just too big that we can't see that maybe people born in certain months have a slightly different energy and maybe there's something to that you know and as the more i read the more i'm like hmm I think we just don't understand anything. <laughs> There's a whole field in physics these days that sort of deals with it about the, the physics of consciousness. Mm. Um, uh, there's all these different experiences about how when you're actually observing an experiment, it can actually change the outcome of the experiment. Yeah. Um, but, 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 yeah. but even more than that, our body is a form of uh, electromagnet. We are, we are, we, we have a biomagnetic field around us. Um, and this has been proven. This is, this is, there's nothing spiritual about this. This is mm. just basic um, physics, I suppose, uh, biological physics. Um, and I think that there's interactions. I mean, we get affected by magnets. We know that. Uh, we get affected by all kinds of dif different things. And, and I think that we're probably like some form of radio transmitter on some kind of wavelength. And we're, when we're transmitting on a certain frequency, certain people can feel it, certain people can't. It's like when you go and watch a comedy in a movie theater as versus watching it alone at home, there's a whole different vibe. Mm. It's like you're laughing much stronger in a movie theater than you would at home. It's like in the movie theater, back home, it's like, meh, that was okay. But in the movie theater, you're like bursting out laughing because there is something in that field that's sort of focusing you into that specific frequency. So I think there is something with that. We're all sort of um, playing around with frequencies and people are more sometimes more in tune with other people. And I think that's also why acupuncture is so powerful because it, it is, we do know by MRIs that acupuncture changes your magnetic field. Um, yeah. It changes the way that you are, um, that your neurons are flaring in your body. Uh, so it, this all has to be connected some way. And if you're going into Eastern religions, then it's all consciousness. It's yeah. all the one big consciousness. And from that, the entire realm of reality is created. 
Um, mm. We are all basically living an illusion um, that's constructed by our brain and it's functioned by our perception of reality. What we're yeah. seeing and what we're smelling, what we're feeling causes our perception of reality, which is actually not objective truth. We yeah. may all just be one big wave or consciousness or whatever you the want. Sim to simulation theory, right? The, yep. There was a... There was a, on the Joe Rogan experience, there was a philosophy professor recently. I don't think he made a very good argument. But I, I, I he, heard like I, I, his accent was a bit difficult for me. Oh, yeah, I think he's like yeah. from Liverpool or something. Yeah. Uh, but he was very interesting. Yeah. It's, but he was talking about the three sort of fields of consciousness where you have like the Sam Harris's where it's like, no, the physiological state of your brain dictates consciousness. Then you have like the him, which is like, no consciousness comes first and from there. And then there's the dualists, which is both. And I'm, I think I'm more of a dualist where it's a little bit of both because yin and yang and it, you can't, it has to work together. That's, you know, my thoughts on that, which is a whole different world of conversation well, but it's certainly fascinating I, I would say that like for me my, my perspective is I, I like the Taoist view of it mm. um there's a concept of wuji wuji is basically a general everything and nothingness when yeah. you take it into uh, kabbalah or the the jewish mysticism there's a concept that's called insof which is basically infinity mm. um and God created like this space in which reality exists. But when you're going on a, on a more spiritual level of what is God, it's like this uh, giant consciousness that created reality. Um, mm. I'm not so much talking about the deity or the, the, the Old Testament God, but like a general concept of what is reality. Um, so the Taoist and the Kabbalah sort of have the same function, that there's like this general nothingness that became something. Mm. Um, and that something became duality. So mm. while there is a dualism, which is the yin and yang, that's not the original form of the universe. Mm. Uh, the yin original form of the universe is oneness, um, which is talked about in Hinduism and in Taoism um, quite a lot, and also in Judaism, that matters. Mm. Yeah, I don't know much about Jewish mysticism other than when I was in the <laughs> army. The really religious guys would be like, you're not supposed to read the Kabbalah before you're a certain age or you'll go crazy. And I'm like, oh, it's good that they were the, the Banishim. They were too much for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my aunt is very, my, my, I still have family in Israel. They, she's very much into Kabbalah and, uh, and that stuff. But it's like, I never really got into it. It's over my head. I, I need some more like a little bit of tangible explanation, but also, you know, as I said, as I'm getting older, I'm a little so, bit more open. As I said, stuff. My combat experience caused me to be atheist, basically. Yeah. I completely lost any belief in some form of God. Um, and traveling the East and learning all these philosophies sort of reopened my thinking about the concept of a God, um, not necessarily the Jewish God, mm. uh, but just like a consciousness or something that's like above our ability to comprehend. And eventually you, you meet these Chabad houses all over the, the Far East. And they give you like these, <clears throat> sorry, these crash courses in Kabbalistic philosophy. So it's not necessarily doing the Kabbalah, hardcore spirituality stuff that can actually be dangerous. I've met mm. a lot of people who have lost their mental capacities doing this stuff. Mm. Um, but you do get like the basic philosophy ideas of Kabbalah, which are really interesting. And for me are very, very similar to Buddhism and Taoism. Um, they're basically the same concepts, just with different words, uh, which is what opened me up to the to these concepts. I 
I reconnected with my Judaism as, as a consequence of that stuff. Um, but yeah, it didn't make me religious, just I was open and much more open to the fact or to the idea of a deity or a god or a higher consciousness. Yeah. Well, as I said, sometimes the explanations that we give to things aren't exactly accurate. It got lost in translation over the years. An example is uh, the practice of gratitude. Well, gratitude, like, oh, they're, they're thankful. To me, it's always been the weirdest. Like, I just, it's so strange. But I was listening to some studies about, like, they're actually looking at the brain. And I believe it was on Huberman Lab, if you know that one. And he was talking about, uh, oh, you, you definitely love it. And he's a, it's a Stanford neuroscientist who knows how to talk like a normal human being. So it makes it very relatable. And yeah. he was talking about, like, the practice of gratitude that really work is, is really related to other people accepting and acknowledging you. So for example, if somebody says like, hey, thank you for doing that, that's where you'll actually light up the gratitude. But the affirmations don't do that in the brain. So when you start to realize that it's all about being accepted and, and welcome and all that, that's coming down to that energy is like, people don't, you know, the you can't handle the truth. If you're always telling people the truth and the reality, which is not always as pleasant as people like it, they, they don't mm -hmm. like it. But then when you feed them the, the, the happy, happy, and then it makes them feel good. But I think we need to find that balance where you don't want to be woo-woo, but we need to look at what actually works. And then we can look at the why, as I said. And it's actually surprising when you find out what does work. And then when we dig, the actual why has nothing to do with like the religious explanation. Uh, mm -hmm. But for example, like, like I don't keep kosher, but uh, kosher in Judaism, it makes a lot of sense 2000 years ago when they didn't understand trigonosis and red tide. And they're just like, you know what, you know, Bob got Shmulek got sick eating that stuff. We're just not going to eat it. And then, you know, people have ascribed an explanation to it to me that in modern times, it's like that doesn't 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 comply and it doesn't make sense to me. But 2000 years ago, I'd be like, well, we don't understand this stuff. Well, maybe I don't want to die. So. You know? Yeah, and then the funny thing is that even when you're talking about kosher stuff, if you're going into like the older scriptures and stuff like that, eventually Judaism was very much into veganism. Um, mm. uh, the whole concept of eating meat was supposed to be on very specific occasions um, and with this very specific rituals going around it. Um, mm. And yeah, a, a lot of things get lost over 2000 years of yeah. uh, religion. Um, like the, the whole idea that Jews have all these mitzvahs, all these things that they're supposed to be doing. Um, and the, each, each and every one of them has a moral aspect to it that is made to change your consciousness. Even the act of, give, of blessing, blessing your water, blessing your food, all these things in the end have a function of bringing you to the here and now, yeah. um, being conscious of what you're doing. Um, that's why Jews basically bless everything because. At least in, in my point of view, from my understanding of how meditation works um, and how your mind works, when you're constantly blessing on every single action that you're doing, you're keeping yourself in the here and now, which yeah. is the basics of Zen Buddhism, essentially. Um, and today, a lot of people do it out of habit and not out of um, actual conscious thought about what they're doing. It's like I'm blessing on the water, I'm blessing on the food, I'm saying the words, but it has no meaning behind it. You have mm. to actually bring meaning into the words that you're saying for it to be an actual blessing or to actually have a mental construct work in your mind and do something for you. 
Mm. Otherwise, you're just going through yeah. the words. You know, it makes sense. Like, so, like, I, I, I guess I grew up Reformed Judaism in North America sense, and you know, we did Shabbat every year, but it, to me, it was just like uh, every week, sorry, and it was just an action. We're going through actions, but you know, I was discussing with my wife, who's Chinese and doesn't really know much about this stuff. And we were discussing like, hey, if we have kids that we might actually want to bring back the Shabbat tradition to really treat it as like a meditative period away from the technology and, and just really getting into it. Why? Because we were listening to scientists talk about uh, routine and belief in all yeah. this stuff and saying, well, you know, I have the books somewhere we can we can bring this in and and just sort of treat it as like a family family daytime and and mm -hmm. you don't think of this when you're a kid because like ah because the explanation you're given as a kid is because God said so and I'm like I don't that's not good enough I need I need a better explanation and then when I hear the yeah. neuroscientists talk about it I'm like hmm maybe I, they were onto something they just gave me a bad explanation <laughs> so we'll, we'll see how that turns out yeah um so we've been coming up on about two hours. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you thought we would and you want to talk about? Um, no, I think we sort of went through most of the stuff that, that, that I felt I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, if, if there's anything you want me to expand on or you know whatever. That's well, on that spiritual thing, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, yeah. I mean... We could talk about counterterrorism a little bit if that's a it's a very misunderstood uh, world. I think mm -hmm. I blame Hollywood because <laughs> uh, you're saying you're more of like a shooting instructor because uh, counterterrorism is often brings different ideas to different people. Well, there are different aspects of counterterrorism. Mm -hmm. So you have the strategic look on counterterrorism, which is basically how do you stop terrorism from even happening in your country. And 95% of that work is intelligence work. It's your ability to um, identify where the attacks are going to come from. And if you're talking about places like Iraq and Afghanistan, which is actually technically counterinsurgency, um, it's how you bring the populace to your way of viewing the world. Mm. Um, because terrorism in general, um, especially religious terrorism uh, is dealing with ideology in the end. Um, no army can defeat ideology. The only way you can defeat ideology, you can defeat ideology is by killing every single person on the other side. You have to change the way that people think about you and about your ideology. Like, so for me, if we're talking about what's going on with the Palestinians, um, it's, it has a lot to do with communication and our ability to sort of see how we can live together and how we can understand that we're not necessarily trying to kill each other. Um, like for me growing up, I had no beef with the Palestinians. I mean, that, that stuff only came up when I was in the military and they were shooting at me. Um, and even then I didn't really understand why they were shooting at me. Um, so, so when you're talking generally about counterterrorism, you're talking about the changing of ideology and, the, your, and the, the functions of intelligence. Now, when you're talking on a military level or a, on a special forces level, you're usually talking about either hostage rescue or special action missions um, that are focused on taking out terrorist cells. So that's the arrest technique, those are raids and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and the concept that sort of differentiates counterterrorism from regular combat 
is the civilian factor. It's your ability to shoot or to, to fight within a civilian population without hurting the civilians. That, that's like the, the basic problem. So if you're talking active shooter, if you're talking hostage rescue, um, or even going into a city where you know that there's a terrorist cell, but most of the, the, the people around there aren't terrorists. And again, if you start shooting civilians, you're just causing the next generation of terrorists to, to appear. Mm. So it's how you attack a target without causing minimal collateral damage and not creating the next wave of terrorists by the fact that you're trying to catch the specific person. Um, so when I'm talking about counterterrorism, I'm mostly focused on uh, small unit tactics, um, small arms tactics, uh, how to shoot your weapon precisely, but extremely efficiently and quickly, mm. um, which is not what's, what general infantry is taught. They're, the ranges that they shoot are generally longer ranges. I'm, I'm talking CQB, close quarters battle, um, very short ranges of shooting, which needs a different technique of, of firing your weapon. And small unit tactics of how you work in a small team in a, in a, in a difficult environment, whether it be hostage rescue, a civilian, or just on your own in the middle of a town without any backup, which was my original unit, the counter guerrilla unit. Um, that was what it was focused on. I was teaching units how to go into a raid inside a enemy territory with little to no backup. Um, so that was my focus. Not so much the Kav Maga aspect, but the combat the regular combat aspects and the technical shooting aspects of it. So a lot of it is shooting, but a lot of it is how you work with cover, how you do room clearing, um, and how you train uh, the commanders to command these types of missions. Hmm. I think that summarizes it. More yeah. Less. So I'm, uh, one of the things you were talking about, because I was listening with Nir earlier, is, is the Israeli methodology versus American or British or whatever, and, and the difference of why they're so successful. Uh, we did talk about earlier about the ability to make decisions uh, at a lower level, which I think that's a huge factor. But as far as tactically, how, how does the Israeli methodology differ given the... So the, 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 the basic difference is shooting from, from, the, from the entry or shooting from within the room. Uh, mm -hmm. What's called, I, I forgot the, the, the American system, what it's called. Um, but sure. it's basically... Uh, the basic idea is that we fight from the doorway. Mm. Um, instead of uh, breaching the room and clearing the room and fighting uh, from within the room to a target that's in that specific room. Um, so it's a different form of, of room clearing. Now, the reason that it works, um, and this I can say as someone who's worked with paintball extensively, mm. is because these things have been tested under fire. When mm. you're shooting... Um, when you're shooting at targets that don't shoot back, mm. every system works. You can yeah. go in with a cartwheel and you can uh, throw in ninja stars and all these things work as long as the target's not shooting back at you. But when it's shooting, the target is shooting back at you and it has half a brain and starts to actually fortify itself or hide itself and stuff like that, you need to sort of think differently. And as everything was taught under fire, and one of the things that is also very unique to the, the Israeli military is that it's we have a very young military. Most of our mm. people, most of the combat soldiers are 19 to 21 years old, um, which means that people are constantly changing, which means your, your ability to adapt new techniques is very, very high. Mm. So once we have a situation that's gone bad, we are very good at learning the situation, understanding what, it, what happened there, 
adapting a new technique for that and implementing it back into the field within a month um, or with sometimes within even within days, depending on the units. Um, so our ability to change our tactics quickly is very unique to the Israeli military. Most people, most uh, militaries, they have um, career uh, NCOs or career sergeants that are the instructors there. And they've been doing the same thing for 20 years. And it's really hard to change their, their viewpoint on mm. how they're working with their tactics. Um, so on the one hand, we have very rapid changing of tactics. Um, but on the other hand, we also lose a lot of our ability to, to keep information. Yeah. Like for me, I sometimes feel that every nine or 10 years, the army has to relearn a lot of stuff because they haven't, certain units haven't been in combat or just things sort of change. <laughs> And they forgot how it was done like 10 years ago for specific situations that haven't happened for 10 years, but suddenly they reappear. Um, so, so, so there's that. Uh, the, that's, something, like, oh. yeah, that's something I experienced is by the time anyone got good at their job, they were gone already. And that's one of the reasons I had a lot of issues because I'm like, hey, I was working with this guy about this thing. And then the new guy's like, uh, there's nothing in my file. That's and I'm like, right. are you serious? Like, <laughs> like. And I did, I do think, I mean, tactic that it's interesting. I never thought about it that way because you have the high rotation, you can adapt quicker, but I've, I almost feel like the Israelis need to, to take a slightly more professional army approach at this point where it's a little bit more I of a serious thing. I completely agree with you. Um, I completely agree with you, at least, at least in specific fields of training, specifically mm. counterterrorism for depth, for sure. Um, like for me, my unit is a reserve unit. Um, mm. So I have been in the same position. I've been in the unit for about 17 or 18 years now. And mm. I have been the commander of the unit for about 10 or 12 years now, I think. Mm. Um, so we have a lot of collective memory mm. um, that just doesn't disappear. And and for, for a lot of reasons, we're actually the ones that, that the army sometimes goes to to sort of relearn stuff that they've lost because, because that's what we do. And, and we do it on a regular basis. We, we're, act, we're very active, but we're also um, old. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we remember how it was 20 years ago and remember what happened then and what the adaptions that we did at that time and why we're doing the things that we're doing now. We, under, we understand the why much better than the younger soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's partially because the Israelis don't ever explain the why half the time. Like, Kramaga, why does this technique work? Because it works. Stop asking questions. <laughs> um, but yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of split on that because on the one hand, that's very true what you're saying. We don't tend to, to, uh, <clears throat> to say why. But on the other hand, soldiers constantly ask why. Yeah. Um, Israelis don't, aren't shy of asking why are we doing this. I think I have a better system. Like yeah. a, a rookie can easily come to an officer and say, I think I have a better idea of how to do this. I mean, yeah. he's actually right a lot of the times, which is yeah. the beauty of it. Um, so yeah, the, there's always that balance. Um, the freedom of a soldier to talk and say his mind um, is in our military is, is very important, yeah. um, which is, is again, adaptability. That's, that's part of the, the idea. You never know. Yeah, I had that because uh, I went in, I was 22. So my lieutenants were almost just were as younger old than as you. Me. They were younger or the same age. Yeah. And, you know, and I, my behavior wasn't always the best, but I was a good soldier as far as like, I struggled, but it was I, I did a good soldier. So they're always like, ah, he's older, leave him alone. <laughs> 
some 19 year old sergeant who's like, uh, hey, well, he's been to university before. So what do I know? <laughs> it's certainly a different experience. Um, but yeah, it's just the development of new techniques is interesting. And like, I want like, because Israel, for example, literally was fighting for its survival for so long. And now it's pretty established. It's not going anywhere. So even when I was there, uh, a lot of people were like, it wasn't as popular to go into combat anymore. And uh, that really depends on the time that you're serving. Mm -hmm. uh, because every once in a while, there's a, a big operation or yeah. something big that happens. And that sort of like brings in a whole influx of motivated guys to join the military, uh, to join the combat forces. Um, so it really depends on what time you were enlisted. Um, yeah. And that, that, that really affects that also. But yeah, in general, there's a lot of talk of making a war professional army. We already have surplus of people for, for military duty. We don't need half the military anyways. Yeah. It's a difficult conversation because it's also a very cultural conversation. Yeah. Um, because everybody or most people do the military service. And what happens now, if you decide to turn into a professional army, who's dumb enough to go to state to go to the army? Yeah. Um, in a in a in a country of high tech where everyone sort of eventually wants to go in that direction, mm. it's like, why do I want to waste three years of my life in the field when I can study computers when I'm 18 and get a high tech job in some of the best companies in the world? Yeah. Um, it's a big debate. <laughs> All integrated. Yeah. Cause like uh, here in Canada, the idea of joining the military is like, what? And, and to, eh, I, I've talked to friends who are, that our army is falling apart. Like it really is because the culture isn't there anymore and it's not worth, they don't want to put them. Politicians don't care. They really don't. The way our, our, our soldiers are treated after do after combat, like, no, 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 you didn't get that injury in the army. We're not paying for it, that kind of nonsense. And you can't even get equipment anymore. And if you, you know, talk about being in the military in a place like Vancouver, Toronto, like they're like, why, what's wrong with you? Um, we have a very, it was a funny joke about COVID. One of my students and friends, you know, people are panicking about the government like coming lockdown. And he's like, listen, man, there's like, not enough of us to even take one city and hold it. So don't worry about the military coming in, right? Because the culture in Canada is uh, just not there anymore. And it used to be a once proud military military culture. So the- Well, you know, have... again, look, looking at it from my perspective is why do you even need a military? Yeah. Um, I mean, who's attacking you, Greenland? Because uh, I don't I mean, trust the... America, that's why. And I don't trust China or <laughs> Russia. That's why. And that's uh, true. And, yeah. and, and that, that, that is the, the actual reason why you need to have a, even if it's a small, but highly professional, well-equipped military. Mm. Because a small, very professional military can very quickly turn into a big military when needed. Yeah. But if you're losing all your good people, and if you're losing that equipment and all that stuff, and suddenly World War III breaks out, your ability to, to flip over and create a new military is very, very hard. Mm. Um, but again, if, if you're not fighting wars and you're not really being attacked, there's no reason for a military culture. Mm. Um, so I can understand that completely. I mean, if you don't need a, a, an army, why have one? Um, yeah. I understand your, 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 look, your outlook on life, but uh, I can also see the other viewpoint of most civilians in, in Canada. It's like, no, yeah. no one's attacking us. And there's a reason no one's attacking you. And that's probably because the U.S. is is all over the world doing stuff. Um, yeah. 
I mean, that's the, that's so, I mean, that's an interesting, that's the traditional ideology is like we have the US and I'm like, what happens if the US falls apart? Cause they're kind of going down that path right now. And so like the idea of a militia, which is in the States, like we don't have that in Canada. Um, yeah. Gun ownership, you can have guns here. I, I teach a course, I train as part of self-defense. I include that even though legally you cannot purchase a gun for self-defense in Canada. I teach it as part of my crime. I got program more to do with like, mm -hmm. if I get a gun away from an active shooter, you need to know how to use it. Um, yeah. Not the most likely scenario here, but if I'm going to teach self-defense, I want to teach every possible scenario. And so, you know, P I, people think I'm crazy here. Cause I'm like, my philosophy is it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in war as far as that and i want to have the tools when i need them if, even if i don't need it for a long time but as my friend pointed out if some crazy situation happened in canada the military is not sufficient to hold down the city and the police are not sufficient to hold down a city you need some level of skills yourself both physical and mental and and tactically in case and people the scenario i give here for example is well, we're on the Pacific Rim. We're on a major earthquake fault. There is a regular earthquake here of a massive magnitude every 300 to 700 years in this area. Mm -hmm. I saw how people reacted during the initial lockdowns. I saw how people reacted when we had just had recent flooding here. People get all angry. And I'm like, we have that earthquake. You, the police aren't helping you. I know what the state of our emergency services are here. So in the absence of having a sufficient army, it's like, and, and, and a civilian populace that doesn't care or doesn't want to learn or thinks it's strange to talk about this stuff. I'm like, we're screwed. <laughs> like, a lot of people ask me why I uh, was, I used to be very obsessed with katanas and, and, and swords yeah. and stuff like that. And I said, when the zombie apocalypse comes, <laughs> you're not going to have the ammunition. You want to be yeah. able to have a good ranged weapon. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's the same idea when, 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 not necessarily war if you're gonna have earthquakes if you're gonna have a drought all these things cause civil unrest and mm. you need to know how to defend yourself yeah. um because human beings in general are not good creatures yeah. we don't we, we don't work well in big communities we're good in small communities we're good at helping our neighbors but put too much of us together in one place mm -hmm. and we it never turns out yeah. Uh, never. <laughs> yeah. Especially in times of crisis. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah. The Israeli population is not naive to violence, but the Canadian population increasingly, as, as um, the, the population centers increase, and they tend to be very ideologically naive, I think is a, a nice way to put it. And uh, people like me are like, ah, I don't fit in here, but I like this country, but I don't know. <laughs> Because I'm just like, just be ready. I hope I never, I'd rather be playing games or working out and leave me alone. But if I have to, I have the skills and you don't. So let's see. what. <laughs> it's a very uncomfortable conversation to what they have. I have a lot of people, I run into it a lot. Students come in and I start giving them like the reality of violence and they look on their face. Mm -hmm. Like I had a situation, a mother came in who wants her teenage boys to learn they want to do a private lesson she said i did a class with you before it was good and and uh her two boys she's like my boys don't want to learn anything they're not interested in this and i said okay and so they come in as a family and i start teaching them the techniques but i get a sense like these guys don't want to be here so i start talking about violence and why 
people with violent and this and that. And they're like, the two boys are like, I, I don't understand why someone would attack someone unprovoked. It doesn't make any sense. I'm like, you don't need to understand it. You just need to know it exists. And I was like, what about bullying? They're like, there's no bullying in our schools. I'm like, I guarantee you there is. You're just not seeing it. And then, you know, I said a bunch of stuff. The mother's like, and I tried to use the recent flood here. We had major flooding in certain mm -hmm. parts of like the way people get behave. It's questionable. And I was like, imagine if that's like, you know, a month of that and look at New Orleans. And granted, we don't have the kind of crime problem that New Orleans happens, but it, like they were a year or two and murder went through the roof and they started getting really uncomfortable about the things <laughs> I'm saying. One, because the two boys think I'm nuts and the mother's like, you're talking politics. I'm like, I'm not. I'm talking survival. That's just reality. And then I said to her, okay, why are you here? She says, well, the neighborhood they live in, there's been many recent unprovoked attacks. I'm like, I just wanted to like facepalm myself. Like, and I'm like, I know you're not coming back. Like, but that's the, the reality for a lot. And this the, the individual was from originally Eastern Europe. And I'm just like, I don't understand why you've lost the concept of the reality of violence. People <laughs> have lost the ability to observe history. Yeah. Human history is full of conflict. Um, everything, all of our history up until a couple of years ago has been extremely bloody. And yeah. even people who were born in the, I don't know, 80s, 90s, and they've had like all these comforts of, of modern civilization forgot that World War II was only 80 years ago. Um, yeah. It's not that far away and we're easily going back into there. There's whole parts of civilization that are still there. Yeah. Um, if we're talking about the Middle East, if we're talking about communist China or, or, or just places that, that have become lawless. Venezuela used to be one of the most advanced countries in the world, one of the richest companies, countries in the world. Mm. Their economy basically tanked mm. and people are living in, in, in this horrible uh, poverty. Um, and it's really hard for people to observe what's going on around them and more and even harder for them to see. Um, the lessons of history of how things develop and how things happen what mm. happens when an economy crashes what happens when people start uh border disputes and and like all these things they can cascade very very quickly and if you're not mentally ready for that you're not going to survive the next catastrophe yeah um, and yeah. i you know being in north america the jewish community here in north america i have a lot of problems with them i find you know and don't want to get too much into it but just the naivety of everything is fine. And I'm like, guys, we're the first ones they're going to come after. And you guys mm -hmm. don't want to learn how to defend yourselves. You guys are adopting policies that leave you defenseless. Uh, you're supporting a political party blindly that has rabid anti-Semitism in it. And you're okay with that. And it's, I just think they've been sheltered for so long. And it's been comfortable that the, 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 the priors like me, like I can't get through to them anymore. I almost stopped working with the Jewish community because when I teach, they're not serious. And I'm like, I don't want to deal with you guys anymore. And I'll, other than the fact I say things that they think I'm nuts politically, but I'm like, I'm just saying similar things to the things I'm saying now. And it's like, they just, they don't want to hear it. And I know increasingly I've heard the divide between Israeli culture and Jew, Judaism and, and Judaism in North America. And I'm just like, guys, his, history doesn't look good for us if you guys aren't ready for anything. And it's like, I don't know what's going to, hopefully not. But as I mentioned, there's, the U.S. isn't doing too hot right now. <laughs>
<laughs> so it's like I don't know what. Oh, well, anti-Semitism in Europe was was horrible in the past uh, yeah. 10, 20 years. Um, like there was a huge influx of, of Jews from France. Yeah, uh, they almost all left. Basically, because of the influx of, of uh, refugees into Europe, mm -hmm. um, which caused them. I mean, it's not traditional European anti-Semitism. It's more the Middle, Middle Eastern type, but it doesn't matter. I mean, these things, the first people they attack are the Jews. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising to me if that happens in the States or in Toronto or in anywhere else. Um, yeah. Yeah. What can it's, I say? <laughs> it's interesting. Which is time. actually, which is actually really interesting because th that's always my my dilemma when studying Buddhism and my reality as a Jew. Mm. Uh, because I'm, Buddhism talks about compassion and about releasing your guard and allowing things to sort of happen and and be compassionate to to everyone around you and be very very peaceful, which is very very much what the American Jews are doing these days. They're very, mm -hmm. they're very um, human rights oriented. Um, but there's the flip side, which is I am a Jew. And historically, this has a lot of problems of its own. And I mm -hmm. have the obligation to first defend myself before I help the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and, and that's always something that I'm in, in a dilemma with philosophically. Um, when I want to advance spiritually, what is the right path to take? And it's, it's, it's a dilemma for me, I must say. Um, I do understand why American Jews, yeah, but but again, I understand why American Jews are doing what they're doing. Um, in a manner of speaking, I don't agree with it, but I understand why they're doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting times. Well, I think <laughs> I think we covered a wide variety of topics, yeah. fairly in depth. Yeah. Uh, I think and it's that's getting late for me on this. Side yeah, of the it's getting pretty late. Your <laughs> eyes are starting to go. Um, yeah. Well, thank you from for coming on, Nadav. If anyone Thank you wants for to, having me, it was, yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. If, if anyone wants to reach you, uh, how would they do that if they want to contact you for any reason? Uh, in, uh, social media or email or how would they do that? Uh, yeah, social media is fine. I have a small, very, very small YouTube. Uh, just click my name and, and you'll find me. It's not too difficult. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Warrior's Den podcast. If you like this podcast and our content, make sure you support us in the many various ways you can. The easy and free ways start with liking, subscribing, following, and leaving a positive review wherever you may be listening or watching. You're listening to the Warrior's Den. The Warrior's Den. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions. <laughs>